welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How's it going? Well, I'm uh, annoyed that we're sharing a mic uh, <laughs> because of uh, uh, some technical difficulties. Yeah, it's uh, very unfortunate. A, uh, a soundboard has been misplaced in my house somewhere. Um, and uh, yeah. It's really uh, bothering both of us. Like, we just keep thinking, like, where is that soundboard? <laughs> yeah, if you uh, have been to Tyler's house and you have seen the soundboard, let us know. <laughs> Tell us where that soundboard is. Because we, uh, we're, we're sharing a mic because we have a, a, a third person, the, the third chair. But we'll get to uh, introducing him in a little bit. Uh, we're not going to do a big top of the show thing because we've got plenty to, to talk about. And we generally don't do a top of the show thing. When there's a guest or uh, guest co-host or, uh, well, I guess he's a guest today, technically. Yeah, um, I wasn't thinking about, like, doing anything for the top of the show, but I did, I, if I was, if I was going to, I was gonna talk about, uh, the poor performance of the Marvels, and just, which, admittedly, like, a lot of people expected, but... It did so poorly, and so many of the newer Marvel movies have been so poorly received by critics and fans that it just makes me wonder if, like, Marvel and other uh, other companies that are putting out superhero movies, if maybe they won't be so quick to greenlight something and just assume everyone's going to see it just because it has a Marvel uh, label on it. Uh, yeah, after the... Yeah, seeing the, the box office returns and... Um the Marvels, and then seeing that uh, the MCU is circling Pedro Pascal to play Reed Richards, part of me was like, "What? They're still going ahead with this? Like, we're, we're still going to keep doing these?" Well, I do think that, like, you know, now, now that Disney owns Fox, like that got them X Men and Fantastic Four, and I feel like if any, if any, like new movies could do well, it's those because those are uh, characters and teams that everybody's very familiar with. But, you know, even Captain Marvel, like, I really wasn't aware of that character very well, very much. Um, And granted, people weren't aware of Guardians of the Galaxy either, but but nonetheless, I feel like Marvel is, to their credit, trying to branch out and bring in, you know, lesser-known characters. But I do think that in the past they did that with the assumption that there was just a built-in audience automatically. But I do think that slowly but surely, Marvel is losing its audience. Um, phase four has not been nearly as successful as uh, as as previous phases. Uh, I couldn't tell you which Marvel movies belong to which phase with a gun to my head. Um, I guess I'll say if I'll, I'll just because I'm imagining getting uh, emails. If you had been keeping up on more recent comics. Before Captain Marvel come out came out, Mar- Captain Marvel would have been a more would would have been more in your uh, top of mind because yeah she had Carol Danvers had been uh, had a couple successful uh, a successful book and and had been a big uh, character in the years prior to Brie Larson playing her. Oh okay yeah I mean that's the other thing is like for me um, I stopped reading comics when I was or at least as regularly as I did when I was very young. So, like, the Infinity War, 
was like a huge thing for me uh, when I was a kid. And then I kind of kept, I kept up with like certain large storylines like uh, Civil War, even if I didn't read all the comics in it. Um, so I knew a little bit of stuff, but at the same time, like, yeah, um, as far as Captain Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy and that sort of thing, like, yeah, for the most part, I, I was not up on that, so, um, and, and maybe people, maybe other people were, I'm not sure, so maybe, like, Captain Marvel and Guardians and, uh, Shang-Chi, um, maybe those were, like, really smart moves, I'm not sure, but, uh, either way, I do think that the Marvels... Partially because it required knowledge of Miss Marvel, uh, which on Disney Plus was not particularly uh, uh, successful. Like, it's not a show that a lot of people were talking about, but, like, you know, she's a major character in this new one. And I wonder if some people are like, well, I don't know who that is. I don't have an association with that char- that iteration of the character. And so... You know, Marvel's, like, been moving forward with just, like, so many properties, both as far as shows and movies, and just kind of assuming, perhaps rightfully, that everyone was, uh, was just gonna keep up on everything, um, and I think that they were wrong on that, and so, uh, like I said, I'm just curious to know, like, how quickly they'll greenlight stuff that previously would be seen as risky, but it's worth it. And maybe they won't do that so much anymore. All right, mister, let's keep this episode to 90 minutes and we're not going to do a top show thing. <laughs> let's, uh, real quick, let me tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for, for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors that look great. They sound great. I use them each every day of my life. Uh, today and yesterday, I was using them to listen, to revisit uh, Jay-Z's The Black Album, which is uh, celebrating its 20-year anniversary. It was uh, his... Uh, billed as his final album, his retirement album. It um, was released at the same time as a documentary called Jay-Z Fade to Black, which was an entire career retrospective slash making of the album documentary slash concert film. Uh, It was a big deal, and he's um, released five solo studio albums since then, (laughs) and not counting the Watch the Throne collaboration with Kanye West. So, uh... Uh, we were talking uh, in one of these uh, tweaked things uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, about uh, West Side Gun releasing what he said was going to be his final album. And uh, you just can't believe these musicians when they say they're retiring, when they say it's going to be their, their final album. But uh, the Black Album is good, and it sounded good on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Tyler, we're back? Yeah, we sure are. And, um... We, the listeners, astute listeners, uh, listeners who can read, listeners who could do math might uh, have an inkling of uh, what this episode is going to be because the episode is number 870. 
Yes, 870. Um, and uh, that is an episode number that is evenly divisible by the number 10 and yet not evenly divisible by the number 50, which means, yes, it's a profile slash tribute episode we did we uh, uh, every every 10 weeks except for not every 50 weeks we uh profiled the career of a film related artist who uh has passed away recently um and uh today we are going to be taking on the filmography of the late william friedkin and um tyler it's not just going to be you and me who's uh who's joining us uh, it's our old friend, and uh, I forget all the titles now. Editor at large, third chair, uh, replacement co-host, or whatever you want to call him. But it's Scott and I. Scott, how you doing? Great. Feel like being a guest in my own house. Only we're not in my own house. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to fold that into the Wayne's World thing, but I couldn't quite get there. That that was a haiku. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've got a lot to talk about because William Friedkin had a long, illustrious career before uh, passing away earlier this year at the age of 87. Uh, we should all be so lucky. Uh, so let's um, let's jump in. We're just doing... We're, we're focusing on his directorial efforts, right? As opposed to his long acting career. Uh, well, he I had a guest spot ever, on the, the Simpsons that I didn't end up watching, but I was intrigued by, I guess I'm looking to see if he was a writer in anything that he didn't direct. Uh, not really. No, I, not, I kind no. of expected he would, but he came up through directing live TV. And so he was very much a director first. And he did writing throughout his career, but yeah, I was very director forward. He um, does have a producer credit on paper moon. Oh, intro- oh, that's because that was made under the director's company. That was that short lived thing between he Bogdanovich and Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so yeah, he would have that. Um, there was another movie randomly they had a producer's credit on that I was surprised by, but anyway. Um, but yeah, his first actual feature was an independently financed, well, no, it was financed by a TV company that he didn't work for. So he worked for one of the companies in Chicago directing live TV. They didn't want to finance this movie, but so he went to their rival station and they did. They didn't end up airing it though because it was so controversial. Um, it's called The People versus Paul Crump, and it's a documentary fiction hybrid that like uses interviews with Paul Crump, who was on death row and due to be executed, um, but several people involved thought he was innocent. So Friedkin sought him out, conducted interviews with him, and then staged a lot of reenactments of the crime he was accused of committing, basically as a botched robbery that ended in a murder. Um, and those reenactments really point towards the filmmaker and becoming. They're really visceral and exciting and tense and all that. Um, but yeah, the film was just too controversial. So it won a bunch of prizes at film festivals, but the station didn't end up airing it. But mm. it did end up going to the governor who liked it so much and was so convinced that he commuted Paul Crumb's sentence oh, to wow. a, a life sentence. Yeah, so Friedkin started his career saving a man's life, yeah. which uh, might point to some of the um, arrogance that <laughs> pervaded yeah. the rest of his career. And then he would spend uh, a good portion of his career putting lives in danger. So, Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Great irony at play there. Um, but yeah, that kind of like jumpstarted his potential as a feature film director. And so he parlayed that into a series of other TV documentaries, most of which aren't available right anymore, at least that I could find. Um, and that just kind of got him on people's radars, building to his first uh, proper feature, which of all things was the Sonny and Cher movie Good Times in 1967. Um, he was actually facing a choice between directing that or doing second unit photography on John Frankenheimer's um, Grand Prix. 
and everyone was like, you know, the Frankenheimer gigs would be good, but if you could get stuck just being an assistant director for the, or a second unit director the rest of your life. Yeah. So be a feature director and make good times. Um, good times is a weird movie. Um, it's definitely in the same vein as like the monkey's head. Um, that's the monkey's film head, not the film, <laughs> the monkey's head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just not as adventurous as that. Um, and in his, oh, I'm sorry. The, no. uh, sharing a mic thing means that I can't be can't as quick. Interject, yeah. I can't be as quick as I want. So I couldn't make my, uh, monkey's head an experiment in terror. <laughs> um, <laughs> monkey shines reference before you started talking again, but oh, I was like, alas. fuck it. I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm gonna take over. Yeah, uh, yeah you can hold on to it. It's fine. In really, hit- was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> we need more of those comments more quickly. Yeah. Um, in his autobiography, though, he says that Sonny Bono is one of the few genuine geniuses he ever worked with. Um, you wouldn't necessarily see that bared out in the film. It's basically like a movie about them making the movie and going through a series of scenarios that they might make the movie about, including like a western thing, a gangster picture, and all these kind of like side adventures. Um, pr- one of the more notable parts of it is that uh, George Sanders plays like the studio head who's the kind of villain of the piece and Friedkin talks about how he didn't expect he'd be able to get an actor of Sanders caliber for you know this kind of low budget debut film of kind of a fly what felt like at the time a fly by night musical act um, but Sanders you know was kind of down on it down and out uh, as far as his own fortunes go and so he's happy to take the gig and mm-hmm. he's pretty solid in the film um, that same year, he directed a pilot for an offbeat uh, Greenwich Village comedy team called the Pickle Brothers that I really recommend people check out. It's on YouTube, and it's completely insane. 20 minutes of just, like, it's basically a 20-minute Marx Brothers movie. Oh, nice. Um, and so you really get a sense of just how adventurous he could be, I think, between those two films in very different ways. I, after I saw Good Times, I was commenting on Twitter that, like, every William Friedkin movie I watched was like, this is the weirdest Friedkin movie in very different ways. And Good Times is, yeah, a nice little batch of insanity. Well, that could be a fun debate. What's the weirdest Friedkin movie? I I think I have an answer to that. Okay. And it's, it's much later down the road. Yeah. Um, and then, so next up, he directs The Birthday Party, which is um, the first movie that he really felt passionately about um, and was a Harold Pinter adaptation he saw the play in San Francisco when he was out promoting the people versus Paul Crump and really wanted to make a movie from it. I don't think it's that successful. I think it's a little early in his career for him to feel comfortable directing stage stuff, which I think he does very well in his career, which we'll get to. Yeah. But here he doesn't really know how to reckon with the uh, periods of silence you need in Pinter. Um, Cause I don't know if you guys have ever seen Pinter performed. No, I don't no. So. Yeah, I've only I seen did the... a monologue from Pinter oh, really? at a theater camp that I went to That's cool. uh, my, between my junior and senior year. Maybe, Which play? Of, uh, I don't even remember what play it was, but I remember the monologue was about um, keeping your teeth clean. <laughs> that... Sounds like something he could go on a tear about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Pinter has great dialogue, but as much as the thrill of the stage is filling the silences and letting the audience kind of wonder what the characters are really going on about. Um, and I think Friedkin kind of struggles to fill those silences and doesn't really have a sharp, as sharp a sense of what to do with the camera, but it's got, uh, Robert Shaw in the lead role and he's great nice. of course. Um, and it's still obviously a really great, um, I was going to say script, but it's pretty much adapted straight from the play. It's a great play. 
And so if you never get a chance to see performed, which I haven't gotten to see performed, he was actually supposed to, Friedkin was supposed to direct it for the Geffen Theater here in LA like 10 years ago. But it was going to be him and Tim Roth playing one of the older guys. Mm. But he and Tim Roth like had huge creative disagreements and they're apparently both gigantic assholes. <laughs> so I'm not that surprised. Um, and unfortunately that fell through, but I was really excited about that. Um, so I think the first one up that I know David at least has seen is The Night That Rated Minsky's. Yeah, Tyler, did you see The Night That Rated Minsky's? I did not, unfortunately. But I did recently rewatch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's playing in a movie theater in the background. Oh. So I feel like I saw it. There you go. Uh, I love that kind of stuff. Um, movies and movies. Uh, it's playing, you see, like, you see the... Like on the marquee? The marquee, you actually yeah. see it. Okay, you see the marquee. That's great. Um... Yeah, uh, then I, yeah. so this is the first uh, of the features that I've seen, and um, although IMDb says it has a PG-13 rating, which um, didn't well, it wouldn't be the case, yeah. <laughs> so it must have been on, like, a re-release or something. Yeah. And also, but also, if this movie were released today, it would definitely be R-rated, be- yeah. simply because it has bare breasts in it. Which, For, like, like, I don't know, half a second? <laughs> but even, like, yeah, uh, I mean, it's crazy to think that it used to, like movies used to get like PG or PG 13 yeah. with, you know, non-sexual nudity. I definitely were 18 again. I think I've talked about it on the podcast more than once. There's like a scene at like a nude, like college painting class and there's a nude. Oh, woman, sure. But it's not sexual. So it was really PG. Well, Barry Lyndon. Um, yeah. So it's a PG movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, but, uh, the night the rated Minsky's. So, uh, it is a, f- a fictional is historical fiction. I yeah. guess, I guess Minsky's well, first off, the difference between real life so minsky's in the movie is the name of a burlesque yeah. theater in real life minsky's burlesque there were four minsky brothers they had a they didn't have their own theater but they put on shows it was minsky's oh, okay. burlesque but didn't have their own theater the way that the way it's presented here but in any case the striptease is the legend has it that it was invented at one of minsky's burlesque yeah. shows and so this is a fictional account of the first ever striptease at a burlesque show um starring the uh, gorgeous brit eckland uh but also um jason robards jason LA Gould. uh uh yeah, Forrest, Forrest Tucker. Um, oh yeah, Denim Elliott, who's always who's always great. So um, you've got. Uh, I, I think this. Uh, I, I watched these chronologically. The ones I hadn't seen before, yeah. I watched chronologically. Um, and in retrospect, like seeing William Friedkin's uh, affinity for the sort of not just outcasts but the kind of iconoclastic like sure. uh, uh, Americans and also um, his interest in not his interest in sex so much as his interest in our interest in sex or his yeah. like, um, protagonist interest in sex so uh, yeah you've got like what I think of as like respectable type actors like Jason Robards and Denim Elliott playing like these kind of uh, bohemian lowlife types um, who are like, they make their living as performers and comedians, but they're um, also kind of like scammers and schemers. You know, Jason Robards is like, uh, he's like trying to pick up women at a diner at one point. Sorry, well, it's been like and, 10 weeks since I watched this. But. Yeah. Well, Andy's basically like concocting this whole scheme just to keep Rick, Brett Eklund around oh, um, right. because yeah. she just wants to perform like a dance based on the Bible. And they're like parlaying that into tricking 
like the authorities to raid them in the midst of this very innocent performance. And so they're basically right. just using her as a gag. Yeah. Cause she's, yeah, I forgot. She's an Amish girl who yeah. likes to dance, who has come to New York to dance, but not dance in a Sexily. sexy way. Yeah. She's like literally doing interpretive dances yeah. based on Bible stories. And she, yeah, she gets roped into this thing. Um, and yeah, so as Scott was saying, the idea is they're putting out the rumor that Minsky's is going to go Have all this salacious like, performer salacious performance, but they're actually going to do this Bible dance so that they like, trick the uh cops into looking stupid basically yeah. <laughs> um so it's kind of like oh, a, it's the a 20s. farce yeah. and uh scheming thing uh i really it, liked it it's a fun movie yeah. yeah i mean it's a little manic and like first eight minutes are like just the credits <laughs> which like i kept getting exhaustive like is the movie gonna start yet um but it's it's fun i enjoyed it um but it was one in a i mean these first three movies were all failures of the box office, as was the next one. Um, yeah, so I also watched The Boys in the Band yeah. for the first time. And that's, like, obviously a, a landmark movie in the history of LGBTQIA plus movies um, based on a, on, on a play. Uh, I think all of the cast were the stage. Yep. Yeah, so entirely. Uh, but I, I the... The playwright actually mandated that as a condition of ad- adapting oh. it into the film. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I don't think that I actually think his filmmaking here is quite good. I just think there's something like incredibly dated about this, even though I'm assuming it was written by a gay man. It was. So he started writing it in like 1957 and he came from that generation of like very closeted, like you really had to keep it on the down low gay life. And a lot of like self-loathing was built into that. And it was just a much rougher time for gay life. And so he started writing it as an assistant. Basically, Natalie Wood hired him as an assistant so that he could write this play. She was like, you don't have to do anything for me. I'm rich. I want you to write this play. Go for it. Um, And so by the time he finished it and they staged it in 1968, it was already starting to feel a little out of step. And then especially the movie came. So between the play being staged in 1968 and the movie in 1970, Stonewall happens and the entire pivoted or like fulcrum of gay life uh changes entirely and so by the time the movie comes out it already feels a little out of step and out of time but as somebody who's watched a ton of movies from the 50s by like very closeted gay men who like had to filter their Mm -hmm. concerns into like romantic stories or like mixed up teens or whatever else like it was i thought it found it really exciting as an explosion of all that anger and resentment and self-loathing um i just thought it was a really great piece of theater that was transposed to film very well uh, yeah, on the 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 basics. Yeah, I think you're right, but uh, it's hard. You mentioned, yeah. So, so a picture of gay men who are all filled with self-loathing yeah. and communicate almost exclusively in like biting quips and bon mots. Yeah. Like it feels like it's a negative stereotype now even though like you're saying it came from like within the context of where it came from it makes sense and all the characters were based on guys that the playwright knew and the main character is kind of based on himself like this alcoholic guy who's really like yeah very self-loathing yeah Um, yeah and definitely i mean i think he's yeah he's definitely the most self-loathing and maybe the most closeted in his normal life than the other in well, a not, way there's yeah. a couple other ones yeah there's but, a couple other ones that are more but there so. are, i'm saying there are also characters that are pretty much out or like yeah, aren't really sure. trying to hide yeah. it either uh yeah I, I mean i think the 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 way that he that freaking stages and shoots and lights it um i think uh i, I think it, it, it speaks to what a lot of his strengths will be 
going forward, which is kind of like trusting the material and trusting the performances. And he doesn't do a whole lot of like embellishment directorially or putting his thumb on the scale directorially. He kind of just trusts that. And, and and I think, uh, as the play is written, it definitely, the, the, the way the tension builds and releases is very well staged. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess just a word of warning, a grain of salt. It's very dated. So one thing, having not seen these movies, but uh, having, you know, taught a lot of classes about film history and American film history and having taken a lot of classes about that, one thing that really strikes me, given what you've been talking about, is that when talking about New Hollywood, people don't really talk about Friedkin enough. I agree. Like they talk about, obviously, like Coppola, Scorsese and um, Arthur Penn and that kind of thing. kind of thing but given what you've just talked about we've got a movie about like the first strip tease and then we've got a movie like with all of these gay characters which even in 1970 in hollywood at least that's still relatively new it was apparently i think the first studio release film to focus on gay characters yeah Yeah, and and i guess uh when did sunday bloody sunday come out the next year Uh, i don't know yeah but um anyway but but yeah so given the content that he's engaging with and then of course as we would go on to see the style in which he makes movies um i really think that a he really benefited from the philosophy of new hollywood and i think he also helped to shape it but he doesn't really get much credit in that area yeah i mean it's interesting because new hollywood was kind of being formed even before the kind of Easy Rider explosion. Right. And so he kind of feels like an outgrowth of like a John Frankenheimer. Sure. Of like a guy who's taking a lot of chances and pushing the medium in interesting ways, but within sort of a mainstream framework. Yeah. And I think that's definitely the case with the French Connection. And the big reason that I wanted to... Yeah, so we are moving on to the French Connection. It's good with me. Uh, and also, uh, Tyler, your brain did not fail you. Uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday is 1971. Nice. All right. Yeah. Mine is a steel trap. <laughs> okay, um, let's talk about the French yeah, Connection. Yeah, I mean, I mainly wanted to... F- highlight the failure of those first four movies like on a, from a box office perspective and in some cases critically like these weren't like celebrated films and so I wanted to note how unusual and unexpected and strange it was that the French Connection hit the way it did and was as successful as it was and a lot of that was because like there was almost no support for it they had they spent two years trying to sell it to studios and it was only because I think Daryl Zanuck, whichever Zanuck was in charge at that time of Fox, he could tell he was getting pushed out of the studio. And he's like, you know what, guys? I think I like this French Connection movie. They're going to let me go no matter what. Can you make it for a million and a half? They're like, I guess. Um, And they barely got a leading man. Like, Hackman didn't even want to do it that much. But everyone else said no. And Hackman was free and not yet in a position to say no to anything. Mm. Um, And so it's just extremely unusual that it came together at all, let alone was this gigantic success. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is a movie, obviously, I've, I've seen before, uh, but I did rewatch it Same. for these purposes. And um, so, you know, this is just me being stupid, uh, is that when I would think of William Friedkin, I always thought of, thought of him as like, oh, yes, he's a very capable, uh, uh, kind of groundbreaking journeyman director i did not think of him as, as an auteur uh, but then as i started re-watching stuff and then watching stuff for the first time i realized like oh i'm stupid <laughs> i'm a stupid person um because 
as I was watching this and his later movies, I was just like, wow, okay. So there are three things now that I, and you mentioned one of them already. Uh, there are three things that I associate with, with William Friedkin at this point. One is, cons- is just a constant forward momentum. Yeah. It doesn't matter if someone's driving really fast, driving very slow, <laughs> or um, just sitting in a courtroom. Like, it just keeps you, like, glued to the t- glued to the, the screen, um, and it just goes at such, like, a deliberate pace, and that, like, none of his films, for me, have ever felt like they've dragged at no. all. Um, so that's the first thing, and then the second thing is having a, a main character that just kind of does, you said, like, sort of a, an outcast or an outlier. I would say that's about right. Um, but either way, like, someone who does things their own way, they're cut from a different cloth, and they will often sort of stand against other people to do things the way they want to do it. And and then the last thing is just a general c- cynical suspicion of uh, institutions. Um, yeah. Which, of course, will go hand in hand with that second thing. But, like, you get to French Connection, and you've got all of them. You've got all of them. I mean, obviously, people think of it as, like, this really great chase movie, and it is, for sure. Um, but you also have Popeye Doyle doing things his own way, uh, even though, like, his superiors are constantly suspicious of him and really trying to utter undercut him at every point, and perhaps rightfully so, but... Uh, but yeah, like you get to you get to French Connection, and that definitely rolls all of these things into one. But it certainly will not be the last time he does that, and it wasn't the first time he did he did it. Like given the stories that you're talking you're talking yeah. about, um, yeah, it is about these people that, for good or ill, just kind of stand on their own and choose to do things their own way. And uh, and so as I started thinking about that. Like so much of his other stuff fell into uh, fell into place, and it's like, oh my, yes, he's in my in my opinion similar to Roman Polanski. He's been telling a different variation of the same story for like his entire career. Yeah, totally. And like that kind of persona that you concocted there is very much Friedkin himself. Yeah. Like he was constantly going up against the system and constantly picking fights, some of which he didn't need to be picking and a lot of which could have been solved other ways, but he only knew to do it this one way. And yeah. I think it's because like he just faced resistance at every turn and so only ever knew how to fight. And so, but the fact that he was able to fold that into characters like Popeye Doyle, mm-hmm. who are like racist and genuinely an asshole and like yeah. often not the kind of guy you want to align yourself with. It's not like yeah. he was constantly portraying these people who like are just noble warriors against the system. He's like, no, we're all kind of broken and yeah. uh, fucked up in different ways. I, I recently rewatched Serpico. Oh, sure. And so I watched that. And then like within a week I watched French Connect and I was like, wow, these are very different. Very cops. different. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't mention earlier is that he did an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock hour that is not good at all. And he acknowledges the same, but it's a similar situation of a cop going, who's kind of like using his badge just as an excuse to do whatever he wants with his life. Um, and so it's interesting that again. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't as enamored of French connection this time. I found like, I mean, I, the chase and the ending are still the highlights of the movie for me. And I forgot about the like cat and mouse thing in the subway with Fernando Ray that kicks ass. Um, but yeah. I, I, in some ways, the chase, like the main chase scene felt like kind of shoehorned in like, OK, suddenly there's a sniper guy he's got to kill. <laughs> it's well, not like know, he's um, uh, 
I think the last most recent interview Gene Hackman ever gave was like just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and he admitted that he thinks the car chase in Bullet is better than the car chase in The French Connection, which I kind of agree with. Oh, I kind of disagree. <laughs> I like the Bullet one better. I think the French Connection chase is as good as it gets. I, yeah, um, I have not seen Bullet, but I think one of the great things about the chase in The French Connection is it's not actually a car chase. Like, Yeah, it for is, sure. It's a one-car car chase, and it's also one of those things where it's like, well, he knows where the guy's going. Yeah. You know, the guy's not trying to lose him, except he kind of thinks he already did. Um, and that, to me, like, I don't feel like, I don't think that's shoehorned in, insofar as it's completely in character for Popeye Doyle. Like, yeah, for sure. Never give up. And I mean, that mo- I mean, that moment where, like, the guy gets off the train and there's fucking Popeye Doyle <laughs> at the bottom of the stairs. I think that's actually a remarkably... Uh, memorable moment yeah i guess it's just unusual that so much effort was expended on what's essentially a character piece right it it doesn't like it you could take it out and the plot would be exactly the same yeah that's true um and so in that way it's gonna shoot but it's still the highlight of the film that's great yeah um so then you know he wins the oscar for that the film wins best picture and he's able to get on the exorcist which the studio was resisting even though uh the author uh, William Peter Blatty wanted him for it um, because randomly they met uh, prior to the French Connection um, Blake Edwards wanted Friedkin to do a Peter Gunn movie but uh, Friedkin hated the script and told Blake Edwards so and at the time Blatty was working for Blake Edwards and he was like you know I respect that you just told him so and so based on nothing at all Blatty hadn't even seen the French Connection he was like I think you should do The Exorcist oh wow yeah and so but by the time French Connection come out. Everyone wanted him for The Exorcist, but it was the same thing. He was battling for it every step of the way. Um, but I hadn't seen it before. I only watched it for the first time in October. Oh, really? Um, and was pretty blown away. And yeah. now it's like one of four of his movies that I think is in close contention for one of his best or for being his best. Yeah. Um, uh, I've seen it um, a number of times, including we did a commentary. We did our religious oh, yeah. horror commentary. Um but I think before you go any further, I think this is like uh, exhibit A in the thing I was talking about, about his approach of trusting the material and the actors and not uh, uh, pushing for things. And there's something so matter of fact, despite the fact that this is a supernatural movie, there's something so matter of fact about the way that he assembles and presents information. Um, and uh, I think we talked about this on Twitter, Scott, so you might disagree. I know you disagree with me, but I think Tyler might. Uh, well, t- t- Tyler has said before when we talk about horror movies that the movie doesn't have to be scary to be a horror movie. Yeah, uh, There are things in The Exorcist that I do think are scary, but they just have to be horrifying. And to me, the sequence of Reagan getting the spinal tap is oh. every bit <laughs> as horrifying as the like more overtly supernatural stuff that happens later. And I think it's because he presents everything so matter of fact that they're kind of on the same level. It's still like terrible things are being done to this little girl. Yeah. I mean, I get why people think that. Um, but I think that's partially like, I don't know, maybe I'm just still a little too religious and still kind of like yeah. can. Well, Tyler, uh, is the only one in this room I think that has had a spinal tap, but I don't, I don't think you were conscious for it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't really remember that. (laughs) It was a breeze. Um, I don't know what Reagan was complaining about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was weird because it wasn't really like the movie wasn't exactly scaring me in the moment, but like I woke up the next day and I was like still like haunted by it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think 
you know, a movie that I'm not a big fan of that uh, was undoubtedly made because of The Exorcist is uh, The Omen. Oh, sure. And it would have been super easy to direct The Exorcist the way Richard Donner directs The Omen, where everything is just so so soaked through with mm. portent and stuff. Um, but instead, like, yeah, that's that's the thing I most respond to about The Exorcist is it feels like the character and the director are doing their due diligence. Like, they don't immediately jump to uh, a supernatural answer. Yeah. Um, and so, like, by the time you arrive at, by the time the characters arrive at that, uh, you as the audience do too, where you're just like, well, we've tried everything. I don't know what else it is. And there's that, and there's something genuinely frightening about that. When you realize, like, all the rational explanations do not explain this. So I guess this is what it is. And yeah. there's something, there's an inevitability to it that I really respond to. Yeah, and centering the film around atheist characters is a really smart call yeah. on that. And, and around a priest who's like losing his faith. Like, yeah. everyone has every reason to doubt that this is the solution. It's not like even the 10th thing they would jump to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think what David was mentioning in terms of just like presenting things very mat kind of matter of factly, mm -hmm. even though it gets very expressionistic toward around the time of the exorcism scenes yeah. is what made it so effective to me is it's like it's all it's all happening. Um, side note to backtrack. Do you think both of you, either of you listeners, do you think that the omens poor reputation comes from people just not being able to help reflexively comparing it to the exorcist? Um because I remember when we did our, uh, the aforementioned um, religious horror commentary, uh, which, by the way, you guys can get if you uh, sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash Battleship Pretension. You can have access to those. Um, Susan Burke joined us for The Omen, and she was like, I think everyone's wrong. I love The Omen. I think it's fun. And I think that is, the, yeah, The Omen is fun, <laughs> which The Exorcist isn't. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about that digression? I've never seen The Omen, so I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Um, Great score. Oh, that's for sure. It's the only the only Oscar Jerry Goldsmith ever won. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I do think people are going to compare it, and maybe that's the thing. Maybe one of the reasons people think The Omen is so fun is because it's not The Exorcist. Like, it actually does embrace the more gothic elements of the story. Um, whereas, like I said... Uh, Exorcist always, to me, just feels like a drama that becomes very intense. Yeah. Um, whereas The Omen is always like a horror movie and sort of an old school horror movie, which I don't hold it against it, but I definitely prefer uh, The Exorcist. But that's the thing is The Omen was also very successful at the time. So it clearly resonated with people. But at, but I don't I, I do think that like a comparison is inevitable, inevitable because, as I said, I genuinely don't think The Omen would have been made uh, if it weren't sure. for The Exorcist. Well, I mean, both movies are coming out, and The Exorcist especially is coming out um, at a time when the country is very much reflecting on its relationship with God. Yeah. And there's, like, mainstream magazine stories and specials on television, like, discussing the fall of religion in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the film is, like, an expressive... Uh, piece of art about those concerns yeah. without like directly making it about that like yeah. nobody there's obviously uh, what Father Karras is like questioning his faith yeah. but um, there's nobody who's having like an overt 
discussion of those things. It's right. like more of a natural dramatic way to explore those. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. Friedkin starts off his autobiography with a story of being on the press junket for killer Joe. And he's doing an interview with some journalists who are asking him like just kind of generic questions about like the role of film society and some women nearby them here over here, what they're talking about. They don't know who Friedkin is. They don't even know that's an interview. And they come over, they're like, couldn't help you over here. You guys, you know, we just kind of wanted to give our perspective from like an audience. It's like, we just want to watch movies that are fun. And so Friedkin's like, uh, you know, have you heard of killer Joe? And they're like, no, we don't know what that is. And he's like, what do you think of, I think you asked him about like the Avengers or some other superhero movie. And they're yeah. like, that was great. One of our favorite movies. And he's like, have you ever heard of the exorcist? And like, Oh, we love that movie. He's like, so that's fun to you. And they're yeah. like, well, no, but that makes you think. And he's like, Oh, so that's valuable too. And they're like, well, I guess. Yeah. And occasionally there's just a movie that comes along. And I think like Oppenheimer is the case that this year, there's this movie that comes along that yeah. kind of, gets the audience going in a different way than they're used to, yeah. but still feels as engaging as the fun movies they are, they think of as what they want to see. Yeah. And The Exorcist just kind of hit that the zeitgeist at the right time. Yeah, that's a conversation that I've had many, many, many times with yeah. people is they're like, I just like fun movies. I'm like, well, what do you think of Shawshank Redemption? They're like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's amazing. I was like, and then I say, what about that prison rape scene? <laughs> like a lot of one? fun there. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's the thing is like, I think people, they think of enjoyment when what they actually are, should be thinking of is engagement. And that's in fact what they're actually doing. Yeah. Whether they know it or not. Yeah, totally. Um, um, anything else about the exorcist? No, uh, I mean, from there, I, I was going to, I was just going to interject yeah. because I pretty sure you watched, there's a documentary coming later, um, in which he talks a little bit about the making of the exorcist. Um, I don't know if you watched it, but, uh, no. Uh, the Devil and Father Immort. Um, oh, yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, so he... Um, uh, I learned from that that the the house that they used in Georgetown was a real house, but it did not actually... Yeah, they built... that staircase, yeah. they built a false facade that extended the house to the staircase just so they could have Father Karras get, you know, thrown out the window down the staircase to his, to his death. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of making up stories that I could go into if we had more time, but um, definitely recommend listening to his autobiography or just like reading up on the making of that film because it's it's pretty wild. Um, but because those two movies were so successful, um, Universal gave him this gigantic uh, development deal and they and Paramount were all in on producing Sorcerer. And this is the only movie where he had like no one really questioning why he was spending tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. But unfortunately, it failed terribly which is too bad because I, I this is one of another one of his four movies that i would say are just about perfect but i mean yeah i guess it, it it failed in the sense that you know studios tend to think of like in short term but like i grew up i only watched it for the first time for this yeah but i've known that sorcerer is like a great loved movie like since i was a kid my oh, dad weird. loved it like natalie's both natalie's parents loved it like i feel like every boomer that I know, like you have a very different experience than I do. I, really, I never heard. Of, I mean, I had seen it like on the shelf and like a bootleg copy, I think. Really, and at one of the finer video stores in Portland. Um, but really, until he like sued the studios to get it released in 2012, I think. Um, oh. I hadn't heard people really talk about it seriously. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I um, uh, yeah, my my dad loved it, um, I, and so I knew the premise. When, when I was a kid, I just had never actually seen it. And, uh, even Nat like Natalie had never seen it either, but, uh, she was, she was, she knew her 
parents loved it and she was under the impression it was a horror movie which if you've seen the movie it's not yeah. but also if all you know is that it's made by the guy who made The Exorcist it's called Sorcerer yeah. and the cover art is that like sort of creepy like yeah. Aztec like uh, carving like yeah that would look like it's a horror movie well they yeah Friedkin supposes this is one of the reasons that it failed is people saw from the director of The Exorcist the uh, Sorcerer and yeah. then it's about some trucks <laughs> like yeah probably not the best uh, it was also being released against Star Wars so that yeah, was uh, I was, I was gonna say if he had made the movie that's like putting aside like budgets and stuff yeah, yeah. and all that like if he had made the movie the exact same way but it came out in 74 i bet it would have done really well probably but, like you yeah. know it's post jaws post rocky uh same year as star wars yeah i feel like we're getting to the point where like new hollywood is starting to kind of come to an end uh offic- like kind of semi-officially and so a movie like that might not resonate with people quite so much. Yeah, and this is one of the movies that people feel kind of ended that period of just, like, spending... There's all these people spending tens of millions of dollars on movies that tanked at the box office. But here's the thing. Uh, the money's on the screen. Oh, in, yeah. In Sorcerer. It's I, incredible. I, uh, I have, in recent years, uh, increasingly railed against the use of CGI fire and CGI yeah. explosions. There is so much shit blows up in this movie. Yeah. Even before we get to the, uh, the uh, uh, oh my God, uh, nitrogen? Yeah. Nitroglycerin. Even before we get to nit- nitroglycerin, there are so many explosions. There's a fire that burns the entire movie yep. uh, that's like stories and stories high. And it's all real fire and I'm sure terrible for the environment and everything and, <laughs> and safety concerns. But uh, it looks great. Yeah. Um, I, so I first saw that on, this on this, that re-release when oh. after he sued for it to get come out. And he was there for a Q&A. He apparently does this all the time, but he was there for like two and a half hours answering questions, which was amazing. Oh, man. But yeah, watching that truck sequence on the bridge in a theater was like everybody was just like clawing their skin off and yeah. losing their minds. Um, if you've, I mean, I recommend people see it at all, but if you ever had a chance to see it with an audience, definitely do so. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, and watching, I watched it last night. Oh, wow. And because uh, I was kind of catching up with some other stuff and yeah. uh, I was trying to see if I could find it somewhere that it was already streaming, but eventually I had to rent it yeah. anyway. Uh, so I watched it last night and I had already seen Wages of Fear. So yeah. I kind of knew the plot points, but, you know, this movie, this story is so much more than just the story. You know, it's all about execution. And as I was watching it, one of the things I thought was like, how did he do this? And of course, I know, he, I know how he did it, which is just to do it. <laughs> um, but just like I was thinking, I was looking at that scene where it's like, yeah, the rain is pouring down. They're going over the bridge like there's so many so many things at play yeah uh and like for me i feel like this would be a really great uh double feature with like Fitzcarraldo or something oh for sure um because it's just one of those movies that i I think a big part of why it's so effective is that it's all there it's all happening it's like i wouldn't be surprised if if uh friedkin was like you know what? Let's actually put a nitroglycerin in the back, just uh, just for realism. <laughs> yeah, just to give the actors a little more terror. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, this is one of the few times he reteamed with an actor, though, because actors, you know, generally hated working with him. But uh, <laughs> he brought was able to bring out Roy Scheider from the French Connection. He wanted Steve McQueen originally in the part, but McQueen didn't want to go to. I think they ended up shooting this in. 
Oh shoot, now I can't even remember. I, 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 Some South American country, though. I want to say. Yeah, I had it up, and now I I also lost it. Yeah, uh, primarily in the Dominican Republic. That's actually. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, after uh, Steve McQueen passed, um, he wanted. Robert Mitchum, who said, why do I got to go all the way there to fall out of a truck? I can do that here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, great uh, score by Tangerine Dream. Um, To harp on the thing about the, like, lack of, like, filmmaking embellishment, it doesn't mean that it's completely dry. He's not Straub Willet. But what it means is when there is, like, a little bit of a flourish yeah hits all the harder you know the even before like obviously the rain sequences uh, the rain bridge thing but there's a part earlier where you've got the uh the frenchman and the palestinian going over that wooden sort of like curved bridge yeah, you know what totally. talking about? yeah and one of the things breaks and one of the tires goes through and the truck pitches forward and you just get a very quick shot of inside the back of the yeah. truck and the nitroglycerin just slightly moving forward in the sand. And yeah, even not with an audience watching it at home alone in the middle of the night, I went, oh. yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Hearing the entire audience wreck that way is so great. Yeah, um, it's but, a really great, uh, listeners. If you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. It's, I was so glad that I did. And yeah, like I love wages of fear and I love this. They're both really well done. Yeah, but even like the part where they're putting the trucks together is exciting. It's like, yeah. I, I don't there's so, such a rhythm and the excitement That's, to that. I said that I knew what the plot was. What I didn't know is that they don't really get on the road until the second half yeah, of the movie. Yeah, it takes a while. And in fact, so much so that like, so we get, we start with four different short stories about how these four drivers all ended up. In, yeah, and there's a moment in, where you're like, am I watching the right movie? That's right, because Roy Scheider isn't even, he's like the fourth one, yeah. I think. So I'm watching, like, this Mexican assassination, yeah. I'm watching this Palestinian, like, uh, uh, bombing attack, yeah. like, and then a whole part of the movie that's in subtitled French, Yeah, I'm like, this is Sorcerer, right? Roy yeah. Scheider's in this at some point, right? Uh, yeah, but also I like the, um, I mean, you mentioned uh, with uh, the French connection of, like, um, Freaking having lead characters who are not like good guys necessarily. Yeah. I mean, like Roy Scheider, presumably our like hero is like we meet him like robbing a Catholic church charity yeah. in a, a priest gets shot. Yeah. I don't think he's the one who shoots the priest, but yeah, still, still yeah. Uh, yeah, he's like he's not a good guy. Um, but that's uh, uh, that's not necessary. Um, a lot of the people in these movies are not going to be good no. guys. All right, uh, what's next? Uh, I think, next I is, think I'm out for a while. All right, next is the Brinks job, which is a definite gear shift of like, okay, I'm not going to be able to spend that much money again. It's a low-key kind of crime caper about a real uh, theft that took place in the 50s of the Brinks Security Corporation and these like very inept criminals managing to steal, I can't remember how much money altogether, but it's like several tens of millions of dollars. Um and it just kind of walking us through the process of how they did that and how they stumbled on how low security Brinks actually was. Um, it's a, mostly fun because of the cast. So it's Peter Falk, Paul Servino, um, gosh, I can't remember who else, but a couple other guys. Um, and so just the chemistry that they all, oh, Warren Oates is like the unhinged guy because every one of these crime movies has like the guy who's like, should we have this guy along? Oh, yeah. And when you have Warren Oates be that guy, that's a, that's a good casting. Yeah. Um, well, and that's the thing is you could actually have like 
the most stable character in the film, but then once you cast one yeah. else, he becomes that guy. A little suspicious, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's mostly fun for all of their chemistry. There's a great gag at the beginning, so it kind of shows them do a few crimes that are just like very low level, one of which they ro- rob a gumball factory, and it has a moment where somebody in the gang sees a door that says, do not open, and you see the door, you see the guy, you see the door again, you're like, I think I know where this is going. Yeah. And he opens it, and more gumballs than I can imagine in existence just spill on top of him. And I could not stop laughing. That's great. Um, And so Friedkin didn't do that many comedies and didn't do that many comedies well, but there's some really good comedy in this movie. And uh, I had a a blast watching it. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Are we on to, on to cruising cruising, which I, again, I, I know I'm, I'm such a square. <laughs> I wish I could be part of the younger generation, like reclaiming this movie. And I certainly see like what's so transfixing about, about it. But, uh, it's also like really, it feels very ugly and exploitative to me at the same time. So I, I know the younger generation loves it. The Safties love it. Who else? I don't know. People have really championed this, yeah. this movie, but, uh, it had, it was definitely protested at the time by a lot of gay people as being like, uh, um, focusing on the worst stereotypes and equating like male homosexuality with like sociopathy and and uh, and violence and stuff. Um, I don't know that that's all there, but I do think that in this case, Friedkin's tendency to remain at a bit of a distance ends up making it seem like, yeah, he is putting this culture under a sort of microscope in like putting it behind glass and like there is something exploitative and like gawking about it. I have mixed feelings about that. I I think this is one of those cases where if there were more like positive gay movies at the time, this wouldn't feel like as a big a deal. Um, But I also kind of disagree with the reflexive assessment that by portraying S&M gay culture, which is something that a lot of people, at least at the time, engaged in happily and freely and fulfillingly, that that's necessarily negative. Um, But what I'm saying is that he's it's not just that he's portraying and I'm sure at the time that was like like I I fully agree that like what you're saying, if there were more uh, movies about gay men at the time, this would be less uh less stand out but it's not just that he's portraying it there is a lasciviousness i think to and it's aesthetically beautiful yeah but um the way that he shoots especially the club scenes just sort of like at a distance from them panning across these sort of various tableau of uh of of uh s&m and sweaty male gay sex there something about the distance is what makes it feel like you're watching uh creatures in a zoo or something like that i mean maybe i'm just giving too much credit but it's I, to me it was adapting the perspective of the main character so al pacino plays a detective who's going undercover in these gay clubs to solve a string of uh, serial murders that they suspect are coming from there because it's targeting gay men and they think that somebody's picking them up in these clubs and murdering them. Um, so they figure this under Al Pacino who they, they, like his chief like describes as like fitting the profile of like young and attractive, but 
the biggest problem is Al Pacino is too old for this role. Uh, he's like pushing 40 at the time mm-hmm. and the targets are very much like guys in their 20s. And so he's kind of doing a star thing of trying to look younger than he, he They wanted Richard Gere originally, who I think would be much better casting. Oh, sure. Even though I think Richard Gere would have a harder time like blending in as a guy who's getting passed over in a gay club because he's way more attractive than Al Pacino is. Like Al Pacino is like decently attractive, especially pushing 40. But um, Pacino is more believable as a guy who can kind of like slide by. But his whole character is like spending the movie resisting um, getting too involved in this culture at all. And by the end, you kind of wonder like resisting his own degrees of attraction. And by the end, end, you suspect that he could even be the killer. Uh, Yeah. And I know that. And that was, I think, um, uh, part of the complaint. Cause I did research into like what the protests are about and that, and that like, could he be the killer is, um, part of what people complaining about the idea that like the closer he gets to this culture, the closer he gets to becoming violent himself. Again, equating the two, like to being a gay man is to be participating in this, this, uh, this depraved violent. Culture. Well, but he's also entering it from a violent perspective. He's on the lookout for any signs yeah. of violence. Uh, um, and one thing the film does really well is at the beginning, they like obviously cloud the identity of the murderer because he wanted to keep a mystery. But then they have the victims from the first, like the victim from the first murder comes back and portrays the killer in the second murder. And it cycles through that a couple of times. I don't know if you picked up on that, but like I, I was I like, didn't. I think I noticed that. And then I read up on that's actually what they did. And because the real murders those were based on, um, they never or they caught a guy who confessed to most of them, but he said that he confessed to more killings than he actually did because the police offered him a bargain to do less time for doing more murders because there were all these killings that they couldn't solve. And so, yeah, there's definitely a case where like someone was getting away with more and they suspect that somebody was doing like copycat murders Mm. of just repeating these things because they knew they could get away with it. So I think that's the thing that really, I really like most about the film is there's a pervasive mystery over who's doing this, how far they're going with it. Could the detective we're supposedly rooting for be caught up in it himself? And it really like gets in that like sense of like there's good and evil in everyone that I we'd love so much in these freaking films. Yeah, um, yeah, that definitely resonates. Uh, you said something about like the distance. Um, what'd you say? Like it's reflecting the point yeah. of view of the character. That's something I also found interesting. That I guess in in the novel they gave the character they, I can't remember the novelist's name so I'm saying they same yeah um, gave the character a homophobic background that oh, there okay. had been like when he was in the army he had like assaulted someone in a bar for like coming on to him or something like that okay um, and it's interesting that Friedkin turned him into uh, almost a cipher yeah uh, and, and I do think that like I said aesthetically formally it's a fascinating movie that's very hard to look away from but I can't uh, I'm sorry I'm too much of a square and a scold that I can't get, <laughs> I can't completely are you separate. one of the modern fuddy duddies yeah I am one of those <laughs> one of those fuddy duddies um, no I'm one of the uh, Gen Z Puritan new Puritans that's what I am um, <laughs> uh, not really although I think I have more in common with them than either of you two do uh, but um yeah, I don't know. Anything else about about cruising? Uh, no, I, I, I'll touch briefly on Deal of the Century because Freakin doesn't even mention his biography and it's a terrible movie. Um, but it uh, stars Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver and it's sort of a 
satire about arms manufacturers and their role in shaping U.S. policy, which is obviously a subject that I think is really fascinating and ripe for satire. Um, but as I said on Letterboxd, like, the worst thing you can say about a big budget comedy is the effects are really good. Um, <laughs> and have that be like your one praise of it. Uh, it's not funny. Chevy Chase and the whole cast are just kind of lost in what they're doing. And it's really poorly shaped and just a mess altogether. I would have been interested to hear like the background of it and how it came together, but it sounds like nobody wants to talk about it. I can understand why. A um, so, uh, couple of things going back to cruising. Uh, one thing that I will say is that there are certain actors that when I hear that they're working, that they're working with William Friedkin, my first thought is like, Oh man, that's going to be great. Uh, Al Pacino being one of them, like the idea of like, Oh man, Al Pacino, working with William Friedkin, that's going to be amazing. Um, and so, uh, so that was one of the reasons that I really wanted to see Cruisin'. Um, but uh, I think, once again, I, like, couldn't find it anywhere. Um, just plain streaming. Yeah. And uh, as for Deal of the Century, I did start watching that. <laughs> I got about five or six minutes in, and I literally had the thought, like, well... I want to be a completist, or at least as much as I can be. And I thought, like, but at the same time, if I'm going to watch yeah. a freaking movie I haven't seen, and it's between this and Killer Joe, uh, or Sorcerer, yeah. or Bug, or whatever, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with those. Because yeah. I, I picked up, pretty early, I picked up on, like, this is going to be some pretty clunky satire. Yeah, it doesn't take long. The, you uh, did, it's you pretty did telling that... The, Tyler, who has more free time than anyone <laughs> I know, <laughs> could, couldn't commit to deal with the century. Yeah, like in that moment, it's like, well, I could watch this, or I could start, or I could keep watching uh, episodes of Monk. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you, you remind me of a uh, um, years ago. Uh, my wife and I were watching Natalie and I were watching something something that was on Amazon because like before it started they showed like a, a commercial for the boys which had not premiered yet and so this like two minute trailer for the boys plays and then in the bit of silence between the end of that and the beginning of where we were watching Natalie said I'd literally rather stare at a wall <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good instinct yeah, unfortunately, you did miss uh, Wallace Shawn's one scene, which is pretty solid. Um, he plays like a high level weapon salesman who's waiting for a phone call that will kind of decide his career. And he's been waiting in this like Mexican terrible hotel for like days. Um, so he's just like going out of his mind. And that's yeah, that's, that's a fun scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So then yeah. after that, yeah. oh. I think we're moving on to the one that I probably should have rewatched because I haven't seen. Well, the first, I want to mention his because uh, he did this before before that movie, um, his Twilight Zone episode Nightcrawlers, which you can find on Daily Motion. I'll just say that I highly recommend it. It's 20 minutes long and it's extraordinarily good. OK. Um, and I don't want to give much more than that away because it's fun to watch it kind of tease out its plot over those 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, To Live and Die in L.A. is one that everyone should watch because th this is my instinctive answer for my favorite freaking movie. Um, it's got it all. It's got the big chase scene, in this case, uh, William Peterson driving the wrong way against traffic. And I think it's the only chase scene freaking did where the protagonists are the ones being chased. Usually has guys in pursuit. Um, by that point in the movie, 
the plot has so escaped uh, William Peterson's character that he is uh, very much on the run. Uh, but he plays a cop very much in the like Poppy Do- Popeye Doyle mode of like just using his badge to his own ends. Um, yeah. And he's actually a Secret Service agent. Um, so at the beginning, we see him protecting the president, but um, then the rest of the film is spent chasing counterfeit bills, which is the other thing the Secret Service does. It's kind of the weirdest organization in the kind of like, armed services is the wrong word, but protective services in a way. Um, and the counterfeiter is played by Willem Dafoe, who this was kind of his first big studio key role. Um, and he's amazing. He's like this totally zen uh, criminal who um, very much has his domain under control. And like, there's a great montage of him making counterfeit bills that goes really into detail of how to make counterfeit money. Um, so if you have the tools and the determination, you can probably figure it out from there. Um, but yeah, William Peterson plays his secret service agent whose partner dies in the line of duty last two days of service. When you know, on the edge of retirement, yeah. damn shame. And so Peterson becomes determined to do anything necessary to catch, uh, Willem Dafoe, including, um, so he goes undercover as this guy wanting to buy some, uh, illegal currency so that he can kind of catch him in the act. But the secret service won't pony up the front fee in order to buy the money. Um, so he concocts a scheme to steal some money that he knows is coming in through another illegal racket. Um, and that's where things spiral out of control and where the big car chase comes from. Um, but it's just very much about a guy who will do absolutely anything to meet his ends. Even if like the ends he's reaching is just like catching counterfeiter. It's like, is that worth, uh, risking all this death, risking his partner's life, risking his own life. But it's about a guy who not only sees his badge as a token to like, that he's untouchable, but he also feels like he's invincible, that he can't die as a result of this. Um, and Friedkin, as always, pushes him to the very edges of that. And the ending is especially like apocalyptic in how far he's gone and how far he's not only taking down his own morality, but his partner's morality in the process. Um, who he's, This partner starts out as like, not the one who died, but his new partner, as this kind of straight-laced guy who will only go so far outside the law and gradually gets worn and worn away until he's just as bad as William Peterson is. Um, and it's just, it's so, so good. I saw it, the arrow played it um, shortly after Freaking died, so I saw it there for the first time. And it's just absolutely thrilling experience. I, yeah, I don't have that much to say, like I said, because I haven't seen it since I was uh, probably, I don't know, 17 or so um but uh it is absolutely my favorite william peterson performance um and it's and it especially like i guess when i saw it csi wouldn't have happened yet but i would have known william peterson from manhunter and from um young guns 2 where he's pat garrett okay. like but in the, like he's the good guy. I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. Will Graham is a little like touched and everything, but he's still like the good guy. And, uh, I also would have only known secret service stuff from in the line of fire, which I watched a sure. gazillion times, a uh, great movie. Um, and so this like, uh, wild card rogue sociopath, yeah. uh, was so exciting to me. Um, and he's like, so cool, but in a way that's terrifying, uh, I've said on this podcast at least once before, if not more times, that William Peterson is like one of the actors I would most like to see get the sort of Tarantino career reframing role. Sure. You know, I'd love to see William Peterson in a Tarantino movie. I'd uh, like to see him in any movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess now he just uh, like he um, they 
rebooted CSI. Oh, okay. So he does that now, I guess. Again. I'm sure other than that, just resting on the CSI laurels. And I mean, he left CSI, you know, because you watched. Yeah. You watched uh, seasons eight and nine, or episodes yeah, of season eight. It was eight. right on the edge of his retirement. Yeah. yeah, so he left CSI, and then, and then, uh, yeah, I guess he came back for this reboot. Um, but he stayed on as executive producer, so I think he kept, kept that money rolling. Oh, in. yeah, I'm sure he's rolling in that yeah. CSI money. Uh, yeah, my first experience with William Peterson was, a, I think, a two-part NBC miniseries of Peter Benchley's uh, The Beast, which is about a giant squid. And he's uh, <laughs> the lead of that, and he's quite good. Um, but here, but yeah, to live and die in L.A., I was really excited to see it. It is fucking nowhere. Like, you can't rent it. I know. It you sucks. You can't rent yeah. it. It's not streaming. And I was really bummed about that because among the actors that I was excited to see work with Friedkin was Willem Dafoe. I oh, yeah. I was really excited to see that. But uh, I guess I'll just have to wait. I'm sure it'll pop up somewhere. I know. It's, it's too bad because it's one that people were really championing in the wake of Friedkin's death. And I, yeah. I think rightly so. Uh, but yeah, it's not even at the library for a disc or something like yeah. it's it's you got to buy it basically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, that was another swing and a miss at the box office for him. Um, so he goes Again, on insane given its reputation, I feel like. Well, and also just or given its I'm entertainment basing, value. I'm just basing uh, my idea of freaking reputation on movies my dad liked. Because <laughs> my <laughs> well, dad it was, liked this movie. Yeah, it was well reviewed at the time. I think it just suffered from not having stars in it. Um, and I think it was released by, I think it ended up being released by Interjam, but it was produced independently. And so it just like didn't have quite the same infrastructure in place. Um, yeah, it's, it's terrific. Um, so from there he goes and directs a couple of made for TV movies, uh, called cat squad. The first one is unwatchable. The second one's interesting, but still just this side of good. Um, interestingly, the first one was shot by Robert Yeoman, who went on to do oh, yeah. um, Rustic Blancance, uh, Wes Anderson's movies. And he was the second unit photographer on To Live and Die in L.A. So To Live and Die in L.A. was shot by Robbie Mueller and like looks amazing. Um, but Mueller was afraid of doing the chase scene. And Robert Yeoman, as Friedkin describes it, was just young and enough to be dumb about it. I was like, sure, I'll do it. So he did, was he was the cinematographer on all the chase stuff, which is very so cool. I take it. Because I'm going by IMDb. Um, yeah. But you're going by a different chronology. Well, so the Cat Squad movies released on either side of Rampage. I was just talking about them together oh, because I see, I see. they're not okay. worth discussing in detail. It's just like okay. typical 80s mercenary stuff um, and very much like showing Friedkin's like authoritarian side, which I think we'll start to see emerge. He starts to get away from being the counterculture guy and starts to be more like, why can't government agents just kill people randomly? Um, and Cat Squad <laughs> is very much in that vein. Um, and the second one's more interesting. It's more in tune with its own limitations. The first one's trying to have the scope of like Sorcerer and having these like far-flung locations but all out of canada and it's just not convincing the second one's more expressive and nuanced and interesting if you're really interested they're both on youtube um but rampage is the next theatrical feature which i know you saw david yeah i watched rampage and i'm really glad i did uh friedkin apparently felt like um he uh missed with this one he felt like it had potential but he i kind of feel like he missed with he it. didn't feel but i find it i found it uh fascinating especially to this always happens when we do these profiles is that are, there are certain traits that I just like land on and keep hammering. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that, that distance, uh, slight distance from the material or that matter of factness, I think that I'm talking about is chilling here because this is a movie that is a, based on percentage of runtime, it's a courtroom drama, which the fact that I like it says a lot <laughs> because courtroom drama is like one of my least favorite Sam. Um, genres of movie. But, um, but it, opens with multiple like truly 
yeah. horrific acts of violence. That stuff is really effective. To me. And um, it plays it all the same. It's um, very loosely inspired by a real uh, case of uh, murders that took place, I think, in real life in Sacramento. Uh, another thing I liked about this movie is that it shoots Stockton for Stockton. This sure is does. a Stockton, California movie that uh, shot on location. Um, and uh, yeah, M- Michael Bean, who ends up being the main character, is the uh, prosecutor who um, is tasked with trying to get this guy the death penalty, despite the fact that his his lo- his legal team is aiming for a an insanity plea or whatever they call it. Uh, and, um, well, and that Michael Bean's character is a liberal who's opposed to the death that's penalty. That's what I was going to say next. But his, he, his boss ran on like being a conservative and like really putting criminals, uh, to death if necessary. Yeah. So I think that again, good and evil, and everyone thing playing out yeah. in Michael Bean and being like, because I think the movie is intentionally, I don't know if cage is the right word, but doesn't, it doesn't lead you to like believe one way or the other by the end. Like has Michael Bean, is he, st- is, is, is he doing this just professionally or has his research and, and study of these crimes made him feel like this is an exception that he actually wants the death penalty for this guy. I, I don't think the movie uh, instructs us how to feel about that or, or how Michael Bean's character feels by the end. I think it's good with Michael Bean's character, but I think the film does put its finger on the weight in terms of favoring the death penalty. Cause like it has that scene where like the psychiatrists are like trying to figure out how to skirt the rules to get this guy off the death penalty. And like, well, we can't send the guy to the death penalty. We all know how awful that is. So if you just say this one thing, it's like, come on. And then did, so there's two endings of this movie. One was the European cut from 87. Which ending did you see? I don't know. I would have to look it up. Did he kill himself in jail? Oh no, no. Yeah. I did read yeah. about that. No, I didn't get, which is how the, real, the real guy, guy yeah. in, the real guy did kill himself in prison. And yeah, I forgot that, that I did read about that. I forgot. Yeah. So the ending of this movie has that like text. That's like very much like, well, if only we'd killed this guy, <laughs> it's like, it's a, it's a little heavy in that regard. And it's like, it's not just because I'm personally opposed to the death penalty. I think there's a more nuanced way to go about it. This is just like so instructive. Um, yeah, but I guess, yeah, he, uh, William Friedkin, said that he's like, I know this movie has its fans, but uh, I don't think I, yeah, I, think I don't think I achieved what I meant to with that. Yeah. I think it, I think it kind of misses the mark. All right. So this is one of those things where it's a shame that we only have two microphones because if I'd had my own microphone, I would have made so many references to giant apes and uh, <laughs> giant wolves and lizards. And it's like, oh yeah, let's give that ape the death penalty and you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But unfortunately, you can't, you can't eat Elizabeth Banks and get away with it in Stockton. <laughs> I, I think that was a famous Robert town line, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so next up, this to me is the weirdest William Friedkin movie, which is the guardian from 1990. That's what I thought you were going to say. Did you see this one? I have not seen it. I've seen clips from it. Oh, my God. Uh, I was first made aware of it by uh, Siskel and Ebert talking about the worst movies of that year and just being mystified that Friedkin made it. And so I went and watched a couple clips of it several years ago and being like, this is uh, an odd choice. It's a strange movie. So it was it started out as just being a movie about a kind of psychotic babysitter. And that's what, essentially what the novel it's based on is about. 
and then through it was supposed to be directed by Sam Raimi and he was starting to get more horror bent and then Friedkin just took it like completely towards insanity and it ends up being about so the babysitter is secretly like a tree woman who's trying to take their baby and give it to a tree to kind of like incorporate um and it is just as insane as that sound has wild very cool special effects and i kind of loved it um i found it convincingly off kilter and exciting and insane and unlike a lot of the movies from around this period that freaking made I, I was totally wrapped and very uh full attention throughout the film it sounds like one of those movies where like you you need to get over the major hurdle of the premise I like, guess, like, once you do, you're but, just like, all right, this is pretty great. Like, people, I'm choosing to accept that this is the story being told. Yeah, it's just, it feels like one of those movies that, like, someone had made it in Russia in 1972. Like, nobody would think it's a strange, they, they're yeah. just like, this is a wild premise. You guys should check out this crazy movie. Yeah. And, like, but because it's an American studio movie in 1990, people are like, well, that's too insane to take seriously. Yeah. But it's just, it's just as much fun and wild as any of those, like, full core movies from that era. And I think also just the fact that Friedkin directed it. Or it's like from the maker of The Exorcist. Yeah. A movie that is nothing like The Exorcist. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a few movies that end up getting sold on from the maker of The Exorcist that mm. uh, lead people the wrong way. This is a much sillier movie than that. Oh, boy. But, um, I, I, again, I was quite excited by it. Um, so his next feature um, is 1994's Blue Chips, which is his first movie with Paramount. Um, but, wait, and didn't you say you watched his Tales from the Crypt? Okay, I did watch his Tales from the Crypt. It's also in, just as insane as The Guardian. Okay, good. Uh, I, I just wanted to know. Much less enjoyable, though. Okay. Um, it's uh, essentially about a band coming apart and a tattoo that's eating this guy. And uh, uh, even describing it further from there, I wouldn't even know quite how to put it into words, how that's coming about. Um, Tia Carrera is in it, though. That's fun. And yeah, it's it's a silly, silly half hour. Why you want to break my heart? Um, yeah. All right, Blue Chips is one that all three of us have seen. Yeah, so Blue Chips is the first movie he makes with Paramount, um, which at the time was being run by Sherry Lansing, whom he'd recently married. And so this starts the period of the industry being like, are you just getting these, this work because Sherry Lansing's your wife? And maybe because I think this is a pretty, pretty weak run for him. I like Blue Chips all right, though. I, oh, well, uh, David, go ahead. No, no, you had some I'll probably have the most positive things to say about it, so you go ahead. Uh, yeah, I also um, didn't care that much. I like Nolte. For Blue Chips, was it? I like Nolte in sure, it. Sure, yeah, but I think this movie, um, I think, especially since we keep coming back to this idea of, like, the good and evil wrestling inside people, this movie is, like, way too simplistic, I think, in its morality. Um, also, like... I'm, I always get frustrated by movies that delve into worlds or appear to delve into worlds, but don't really understand them. I feel like it's a very <laughs> superficial take on how college like athletics uh, works, even in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, it's much less nuanced than like he got game. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but then also, I also think the the screenplay is kind of a, a, a mess um, in that. I feel like it, it starts too many, threads and then the whole abandon some of them and then it's just like okay well let's wrap it up the whole like thing it. where Shaquille O'Neal is uh, faking getting bad test scores because he thinks the thing is is like rigged against black people yeah is one of the most random side plots I've ever seen in a movie yeah and then his first like college class he storms out he like stands up and says this class is culturally biased yeah um and then yeah that thread is completely abandoned that yeah. part of his character There's is abandoned after yeah. the first 40 45 minutes or whatever yeah, um, so Blue Chips is a movie that I, I've been aware of ever since it came out. Uh, not being a sports guy, I uh, 
did not give a shit. Uh, and then, as I was looking up Friedkin movies, and I saw that he directed it, I was like, oh, Nick Nolte and William Friedkin. Yeah. This has immediately become a priority. And, uh, and I, yeah, I agree with you. Like, it does fit into this idea of, like, uh, a corrupt institution and, like, the one guy standing alone who eventually gives in, but it does so in a much less nuanced way than, yeah. like, any of these other movies we've been talking about. Uh, but that said, actually, all the, uh, all the loose threads, I kind of like that. Okay. Because my only, my only problem with that is that I would have preferred it, like, be 100% from Nolte's perspective. Yeah. Um, because, like, that, that, uh, Shaquille O'Neal scene, I like the idea of maybe Shaquille O'Neal, like, failing on purpose and really screwing up Nolte's, uh, team, uh, because... In the same way that I like uh, Hail Caesar, I like the <laughs> idea that this guy is just, like, juggling so much stuff. Like, each and every player, like, has their own issue right. to deal with. I, I like the idea of that on principle. I just feel like they could have centralized it more to Nick Nolte. But I will say that, like, I think the basketball scenes are shot wonderfully. Those are really good. That, man, that opening scene is so wonderful. That's a great way to start a movie, just, yeah. He's so angry, he can't even storm out. Yeah. Like, he leaves and then comes back to yell at them more. And as I was watching it, one thing, and I told David this after I saw it, that, like, one of my big takeaways was, like, damn, I miss Nick Nolte. Yeah. Like, I know he still makes movies, but, like, when I think of him in that and, like, Prince of Tides and Affliction, like, and Q&A, like, he just was such an interesting actor. Yeah. And uh, and I miss I miss that part of him. Um while we're talking about abandoned threads uh in the movie, I also I mourn the Ed O'Neill version of uh all the president's men that we get like two scenes of and then gets <laughs> completely canceled. Um not canceled in modern yeah. terms. Uh but yeah, speaking of Nick Nolte, um yeah, I'm trying to think I, I don't know what I've seen him in recently, but I remember like Natalie and I went to a screening of the air at the arrow of um, down and out in Beverly Hills. And there was a Q and a afterwards with Paul Mazursky, may he rest in peace and Nick Nolte. And I remember Natalie thinking like, Oh, Nick Nolte looks like he's like not doing so well, but this was like 12 years ago. So yeah. he's still, he's still kicking uh, somehow, but yeah, I haven't seen him in anything in, in forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It says he did a voice in Noah. Oh, oh! I think he was maybe like those rock creatures. Wow. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. luck. He's kind of I, a rock creature himself. HBO's luck, I think, was the last thing I saw him in. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think. Well, this says he was in an epi- episode of Poker Face. Hmm. Oh, which I didn't watch. Yeah, I did, and and yeah, now I now they mention it. Yeah, I remember him, and uh, yeah, I thought he was great. I think the last outside of that, like the last movie I saw him in, was probably Warrior. Which he was great in. Oh, uh, the yeah. Movie, the he was good fine, in that. But he's wonderful in it. Um, and, yeah, so it's just, uh, he was just such a unique screen presence. And I hate speaking about him in the past tense, but, like, you know, he was a leading man for a while. And a, just a very interesting one. I, I will defer, I'll defer to Patton Oswalt's bit about Nick Nolte playing Han Solo and how that would make it such a better movie, <laughs> Star Wars such a better movie. And I think I probably agree. Um, yeah, Warrior, speaking of movies in which I think the, uh, 
the sports scenes are the best part. Like the warrior, the MMA fights are awesome. I don't really care that much about the rest of the movie. I don't know if I'm in the minority uh, there, but um, I feel like Galvin Connor did a similar thing with um, uh, Miracle, which was like, I love the hockey sequences. The rest of it feels kind of corny, a corny wig fest. Um, uh, anything else on blue chips or on what I just said? Uh, no, yeah. I'm good. Um, so next up is the infamous Jade, um, which I think isn't as bad as people make it out to be, but I also can't like fully say it's a good movie either. Um, I think, it, it, you know, it, it's got kind of an interesting version of Friedkin's kind of protagonist where David Caruso plays this guy who's um, still very attracted to this woman he was in love with in college, um, who's now married to his best friend from college, but now she's the key suspect in a string of murders. Um, or rather one murder. Um, but Crusoe's so like hollowed out and I think that's good for the character, but also like bad for a leading man in a studio movie. So it's not terribly compelling to watch, but it's got a great chase scene at the center. I think a lot of the imagery around Leo Friontino is really well handled. And, um, I don't know. I, I found it interesting enough, I guess. Um, incidentally, there's a, uh, so obviously like, I have a couple of associations with Jade, having not seen it. One of them is obviously 40-year-old version. Um, But uh, also, so there's a guy named Tom DeMena who uh, we might know from having done a few songs from quote-unquote Godfather of the Musical, um, where he did the song as Fredo and as uh, Mo Green and all that. But anyway... That Fredo song is great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there are two others. There's one, an animated one of uh, Luca Brazzi, and then a really great kind of 80s one of Mo Green. But anyway, um, but he used to do a uh, like a one-man show in L.A. as Telly Savalas. Okay. And he did a great impression, and, and the clothes were dead on. And so it was just stuff like... He was talking about, like, ah, you kids don't know what a, what a card-carrying sex symbol looks like. It's like you guys with your with your Dean Canes and your da- David Boreanazes, and he's like, "Give me a lifer like David Caruso," and it just like that's that's an association I have with David Caruso. Are we moving? Are we moving on? Yeah, I think for the sake of time, uh, Twelve Angry Men is next, um, yeah. which was kind of uh, both literal rejuvenation for his career, and that was very well received and got tons of awards and creative rejuvenation. You can just tell he's a lot more keyed in yeah. to what's going on. And he said, I hadn't made this connection before, but he said that the main inspiration for him wanting to revisit it was the O.J. Simpson trial, which um, sure. when that happened, you know, he knew O.J. socially because they're both famous guys in L.A. Um, and he couldn't imagine that he would commit these murders until he started watching the trial and hearing the evidence. And he was yeah. like, this kind of feels like 12 Angry Men. And so he was kind of revisiting the material in that light. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, I, you know, I've been a fan of the original 12 Angry Men for a long time. Uh, when the new one, I didn't have HBO, but when the new one came out on VHS, I watched it immediately. I think it was actually Showtime. Was it Showtime? I think so. David's you know, looking I it up. I think you might be right, actually. Um, yeah, because he did a Kane Mutiny Court Martial for uh, Showtime as well, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I watched this, and... And it's so interesting because 
I do think that it's less stylized than Sidney Lumet's version, but it still has that constant forward momentum. Yeah. That, you know, there are some movies that just, like, crank out information, like so much of the dialogue is inherently expository, but just the pacing, the editing, the performances, everything makes it seem like it's the most riveting thing ever. Um, JFK is one of those, you know. Uh, All the President's Men is one of those. And I think his 12 Angry Men is one, too. Like, it's done in a pretty realistic style. Not a lot of flourishes, but just the way everything unfolds and the, the types of performances the guy, the, the cast is giving is just really, it's just, a, it's just invigorating. I, I, I love it. I don't like it as much as the original. Um, but I do think it's a really good updating of the original. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty distinct movies to me. Reginald Rose, who wrote the original teleplay and the feature, was still alive. And so he did the updates to the script um, because there's some stuff that, like, they changed the race of some of the characters. They actually, like, incorporate some black members of the jury. Um, They judge a woman, so there was a woman in there. (laughs) Um, And so there were some minor changes they had to make. And they, like, updated the movie that... uh, I can't remember the characters. Uh, juror number four, I guess. Go, go, go see. He goes to Secrets and Lies, yeah, yeah. which is cool. Um, um, what is it in the first? I can't remember. The amazing Mrs. Bainbridge. All right. Uh, um, by the way, yes, it was on Showtime. Oh, um, sorry. Uh, in the original, E.G. Marshall goes to see a double feature. The first is The Scarlet Cir- Circle. It's a very clever whodunit, as he says. <laughs> uh, and then the he says... The remarkable Mrs. Bainbridge, but it turns out mm. it's the amazing Mrs. Bainbridge. Yeah, and in this one, he confuses awesome. the title. He says it's lies and secrets, and yeah. they're like, oh, actually, secrets and lies. And he, and he doesn't know Brenda Blethyn's name. He says, yeah. he says Bella. Um, yeah, but that's fun. And I will say, as far as the updating of things, one thing that I thought is that like making that story in 1997, right? Uh, yeah. Um, it really, uh, it, it creates a different context as far as the kids' representation. For sure. Because yeah. everyone will tell you that men are less sympathetic to, uh, to uh, uh, criminals than women. Mm. And so the idea that this kid has 12 men, not a single woman on that jury, really speaks to, like, how poorly of a job his lawyer did yeah. in jury selection. And so, like, it's the kind of thing that, you know, in 1957, yeah, that's to be expected. But now it has a whole different feel to it. Yeah, totally. Um, I also, I was wondering at first how, because obviously uh, Jack Lemon and George C. Scott are much older yeah. than Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. But I think that kind of plays pretty well. Um, you yeah. both get the sense of, like, an aging workforce um, yeah. you don't, I don't think they say what either character does, but you get the sense that they're still on the job. Um, well, in the, in the original, and that thing is like, I don't remember if they retain these for, yeah. the, for the new one, but Lemon's character is an architect. Yes, and, he does uh, say he's an architect in okay. this one. Yeah. And then, uh, juror number three says that he, uh. Yeah, as a messenger service. Um, yeah, that rings a bell, too. But, uh, well, and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, when you have uh, George C. Scott making fun of Hume Cronin yeah. for being so old, you're like, he's got, what, like four years on you? Uh, it was more than that, actually. Yeah. I, I checked, but Cronin it, there's, I think, over ten years between them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, this is the uh, 
the second time that George C. Scott has taken over for Lee J. Cobb. The first being The Exorcist and Exorcist 3. That's right, yeah. So, just fun bits of trivia there. Yeah, and William Peterson comes back as the yeah. salesman who's kind of waffling between both sides. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm on the whole comparing it to Lumet's version. I just thought this was like the difference between someone directing it when they've had many features under their belt and are in yeah. their 60s versus in their 30s and it's their debut. That's like you sure. said, it's less flashy, but I think the staging's a little more confident and the way that he gets the characters in and out of the yeah. focus of the scene without changing the camera angle yeah. is really well done. There's, there's a lot more... Um overlapping dialogue like yeah you you got that a little bit in the original but for the most part like when a character says something we are paying attention to what they say even if it's kind of in the background yeah Whereas in the new one yeah it's a lot more altman-esque in that regard yeah and the camera style is a lot more documentary yeah. style and a lot of handheld there's some like orchestration but it's very much like yeah in the style of, like the french connection like trying yeah. to capture it in the moment yeah um, so yeah, I loved it. I was really, I, I had wanted to see it for a long time, but I'm glad I got a reason to. All right. Um, moving on to a less engaging courtroom <laughs> drama, uh, rules of engagement. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, yeah, funny. Um, this is one, I, I guess going to back to what Tyler's observation about, like as an, as a younger film fan, thinking of Friedkin as a journeyman, um, I had completely forgotten until after he died that he directed this. Yeah. I saw it, but I completely like when I would think of William Friedkin movies, this is not one that I ever uh, thought of. And I don't remember that much about it, but I know you watched it recently. Yeah. Uh, explosions again. It's got real explosions. It's got some real explosions. Yeah. Um, so the backstory of it that it opens with is that uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel Jackson served in Vietnam together and did some questionable things during the course of that war. Uh, how it's coming to bear in the present is that uh, Tommy Lee Jones is retiring. He's um, transitioned out of the active service and has become a military lawyer. Um, and Samuel L. Jackson, after the retirement party, goes off back into the service and leads a mission to rescue a U.S. diplomat in Yemen um, who's under fire. Um, and in the course of which kills a whole lot of civilians. Yeah. And then the film becomes 78, according to the Wikipedia <laughs> summary that and I so, had to read to refresh my memory. Yeah. The, the case becomes, did, uh, Samuel Jackson commit murder by ordering that his, uh, squad open fire on these civilians or not. Uh, and the film's conclusion is a okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I saw it at the time. I have not seen it in yeah. 23 years. And so, um, and I remember thinking that, you know, the war scenes were impactful. The performances were impactful. Um, you know, you got Guy Pierce as the opposing counsel. You've got, I think, Ben Kingsley as the diplomat, yep. right? And there's kind of an element of conspiracy in there. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it felt, even at the time, I mean... I was 18. I didn't know shit. <laughs> and yet, even then, it felt a little bit just kind of like, yeah, all right, it's there. And then, like, yeah. at the end, there's, like, a text saying, like, after an investigation, this happened. It's like, you know, most movies would actually show that. <laughs> you know you just made this up, right? <laughs> yeah, because, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, it. you're talking about the villain getting caught. Um, I think that would have been pretty effective to see, right? Um, yeah, it just it felt rushed and yeah, it just didn't really uh, do much for me even at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's a potential for some texture in there because um, so Bruce, Bruce Greenwood plays, I think, not maybe not Secretary of State or Defense, but someone in like at the State Department who's yeah. like looking at this from a public relations standpoint of like, 
okay, if we let this guy off, then it becomes the U.S. policy that we killed all these civilians. Yeah. And so it's easier to throw this guy under the bus. And that's interesting, yeah. but it just keeps it introducing random evidence, including some that they had to go into reshoots to get in there um, to feel like we can exonerate Samuel Jackson's character for like perpetrating this massacre, essentially. Well, and you know, I'll say this, like when you talk about 12 angry men, like in reference to the OJ trial, man, I wish the rules of engagement had been made like two years later because how, oh, yeah, how totally. much of an impact would 9-11 and the war on terror have had on rules of engagement? I think it would have been a very different film. Yeah, I mean, you said you wish the movie had been later and not that you wish 9-11 had happened two years earlier. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this kind of feels like one of several movies that were like a ramp up to 9-11 of like making sure that everyone felt as good as they could about the military and uh, okay as they could about killing as many brown people as uh, was necessary in the course of action. Um, So, yeah, it's it's rougher in retrospect, for sure. um, But I can't imagine it like you guys said, playing that well at the time. Um, very quickly um, before we move on I guess yeah. right? Uh, you mentioned not often um, reteaming with actors but uh, William Peterson was in 12 Angry Men uh, yeah. and, and then yes this next one uh, he did two Tommy Lee Jones movies yep. in a row The Hunted was a movie I meant to see this is the thing that happens when you get older once you become an adult you like mean to see movies and then you look up and it's been 20 years yeah. and it's like ah, I never I didn't get to that yeah. so I've been meaning to see it for 20 years uh, and I watched it and I thought it was super cool I think it's got some good imagery like it starts on a great note yeah. um, with like this Johnny Cash song over war footage yeah. and I think it ends on a great note I think a lot of stuff in between is a little like start and stop of like it's on the verge of being exciting like they get the kind of chase assault scene in downtown Portland yeah and there's kind of like the big showdown on the bridge. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, but then there's all that, like for me, really cheap cat and mouse stuff where like Tommy Lee Jones look for Benicio del Toro and he's like, here I am. <laughs> and, like he just like, kind of plays peekaboo for a little bit there. Um, I, I like that. I think it goes back to Tyler's idea of forward momentum, but it seems like you disagree. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I found a, a harder time getting into this one than some of the others. Uh, yeah. I saw it several years ago and then I rewatched it. For this, and uh, I love it even more now than okay. I did then. Uh, I think because I'm just such a sucker for like something that is like stripped down to its core. Sure. And I feel like that's what this movie is. Like, it doesn't really. And I like that we're sympathetic to Benicio del Toro, but we also recognize, like, yeah, I think he needs to be stopped. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's pretty complex. Uh, in the midst of a straightforward chase movie. Um, and I thought the performances were great. I thought the pacing was great. And I just, uh, and it's just, you know, like imagine a French connection was only the car chase. That's kind of how I think of, of the hunted. It's just such a, such a small movie. And yet I, I responded so well to it. Yeah. I think part of the thing for me, and this is kind of like, an unfortunate side effect of freaking endangering so many lives at the beginning of his career is I never really felt like the people were in danger in the same way in this movie. (laughs) And like, that's probably not the worst thing, but you know, by comparison, it's, it's just no sorcerer or French connection where you're like, somebody could die any second now. Uh, I picked up the mic cause I had something to say and then I forgot what it was, but, um, uh, I like some of the supporting cast here. I like Mark Pellegrino, a.k.a. Uh, Lost, uh, Jacob's Lost, or Lost Jacob. <laughs> sure. 
Jacob from Lost. Uh, I like Ron Canada. Um, kind of Neil. Kinda, I generally like kind of Nielsen. I don't feel like this is a. Yeah, it's kind of like it's a great character. It's kind of like the Hillary Swank role in Insomnia or whatever. It's like lady cop. Right. She means business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I've lost track. What are we moving on to next? Uh, next is Bug. Oh, Bug, which might, I know, like, with all love for the French Connection, the Exorcist, Sorcerer, all of these masterpieces, Bug might be my new favorite William Friedkin movie. No, I mean, it's been uh, high up there for me, so. I, I was completely blown away. I, I just, I remember this movie not getting very good reviews. It I, got I, an F cinema score, too. Maybe that's what, yeah, what, it, that, yeah. uh, um, and, uh, uh, but I, I, I was completely engrossed again. Forward momentum, just like these two people are going to keep feeding off yep. e- each other yeah. uh, until they literally explode. Maybe, yeah. possibly. No spoilers. Um, but uh, in the immediate aftermath of his death on 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 Twitter and Blue Sky, there was a lot of outpouring of you know people who had worked with him telling stories. Yeah. And I can't remember who was his editor and assistant editor, but someone who had worked on with him on multiple movies. Oh, it was the editor. I know what story you're talking about. Yeah, he yeah. told the story that William Friedkin always wanted to make movies that people liked, but while they were cutting together Bug, William Friedkin just like it dawned on him. He was like, "Oh, people are gonna hate this," yeah. and then like couldn't stop laughing <laughs> yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I watched it uh, a couple weeks ago, and boy, oh boy. I mean, I thought it was wonderful. Um, But yeah, I feel like uh, as far as uh, thinking of like double features, I feel like Bug and Darren Aronofsky's Mother uh, could be a great double feature of horror movies that aren't horror movies, but really are. Um, And so, yeah, I was really uh, blown away by this. Uh, Obviously, it's and I did not know that Tracy Letts wrote it. Yep. Uh, that's Based almost, on his play. Yeah, that's almost as crazy as the next one. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, so yeah, this uh, among other things introduced the world. And I mean, Michael Shannon had been had been in movies mostly small, very small roles, yeah. and this was his first like leading role. And they really had to fight to keep him in there, but it was only because they were able to cast someone as marketable as Ashley Judd. Um, yeah. And like in both the case, like I love Michael Shannon. I like Ashley Judd a lot. I had no idea either of them could go this far with something like, Oh, I knew Michael Shannon. Yeah. Could. Like, I don't uh, know. Ashley Judd. I never considered yeah. her to be that strong of an actress. Then you see this and it's like, she's Man, so it's good. A, it's a shame. The movie just wasn't really noticed at the time because I think her career really could have gone in a different direction after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think I might have said this to Tyler or somebody else, but like there used to be a podcast that I didn't really like. I don't know if it's still around. Uh, it's called How Did This Get Made? It was comedians making fun of bad movies. Yeah. I would like to see a version of the podcast where it's like literally how did this get made? But it's about <laughs> great movies. Yeah. But like I do like I spent like bug while I watched most of it with a huge like grin on my face uh, and was thinking to myself like who put money into this yeah. and thought that this was going to like be a great return on investment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically the way Freakin tells it is that he saw the play in New York and was like blown away by it. Definitely wanted to turn it into a film, got Tracy Letts on board. And then he went out to Lionsgate. Um, and well, he was going to a lot of independent finances, but Lionsgate has a good kind of pipeline for like cheap 
horror and like thriller yeah. movies. And they were like, yeah, we, certainly at the time. Yeah. And they were like, I think we can sell this as if you can make it for under 400 million, we can probably recoup on just being a new horror movie from the guy who made four, the Exorcist. 400 million? Sorry, 4 million. Okay. Uh, yeah, they came in at about 385. <laughs> um, it's all in that hotel, you know? Um, and Harry Connick Jr., man. Yeah, he, so. He just demands a lot. That was, well, that casting is strange too. He just freaking just met Connick at a table in Las Vegas. And Connick was like, I'm your biggest fan, man. You ever got a role for me? Get me in there. And there's something about like his demeanor at the dinner that he was like, I think I can use him for this yeah. dirt bag. Yeah, absolutely. Ex husband. Parolee. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's so psychologically compelling. And I think by this point, Freegan got a much better handle on how to do stuff that's purely one location. I mean, there's a couple yeah. things outside of the motel. Yeah. But it helps that the location keeps changing and transforming, it, too. Yeah, exactly. And that um, it keeps getting at once, like, more closed in, but also more grotesque and expressive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, again, going back to the idea that horror movies don't necessarily have to be scary to be horror movies. I didn't find this movie scary, but I did, like you talked about, Scott, that um, waking up the next day with The Exorcist still with you. I had the thing for a couple days after watching yeah. Bug of just feeling like, is there something on me? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, so yeah. Uh, you and I mentioned this over dinner recently, but I, I said there's not really any bugs in Bug, and you're like, is there? Yeah. Was that you just being playful, or do you actually think there are bugs in Bug? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there are Yeah, bugs. I was going to say. It <laughs> yeah. seems pretty obvious that there are not. So, yeah, I have a few thoughts about this one. One is that similar, I think, to someone like Clint Eastwood, who goes on, who, like, you know, started making westerns and Dirty Harry and all that, and then as he got older, he started kind of questioning that with stuff like Unforgiven and Grand yeah. Torino. You know, when you think about Friedkin's career and telling stories about, like, these people that are working against the system and, they, uh, and they're kind of doing their own thing, I feel like in the next few movies, yeah. he uh, is kind of turning that on its head and saying, like, yeah, maybe that's not always the best thing. Um, because Michael Shannon in this, like, he, he's convinced of a conspiracy and convinced that, like, he's the only one that can expose it. Or whatever, and in doing so, winds up doing tremendous damage to himself and this woman and other people as well. Yeah. And so I thought that was interesting. But then also, a couple other things. One is uh, a couple of years ago, I made a documentary about horror, and there's a whole section in there about mental illness. And uh, as soon as I watched Bug, I thought, son of a bitch. <laughs> it's like, this would have been all over that section if I had seen it, but unfortunately I did not. Thankfully, uh, Take Shelter was in there. And yeah. then the last thing is that I read an interview that uh, that Friedkin said that he thinks of it as a comedy. And while Interesting. It is, while it is absurd at times, uh, my first thought was like, you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> like, if you think this is hilarious, then like, yeah, I think I think that fits with your reputation. Yeah. Um, um, but as, as much as it's like definitely condemning of this, it is so earnest in tapping into that emotion. And like, yeah. I'm sure we've all had nights of like sitting up and being like, everyone's against me, man. <laughs> the whole world's after me. And like, it kind of fits that like fever sensation that you sometimes get at 2 a.m. Yeah. when there's no one else around to talk you down or just like be around to convince you that the world exists. Um, yeah, it's really um, good. It's weird that I didn't even think about Take Shelter and the fact that Michael Shannon has played two, like, paranoid yeah. schizophrenics. Um, now I'm starting to, maybe a devil, devil's advocate starting to come around, like, maybe there are bugs in, in the movie. <laughs> because I'm starting to wonder, um, uh, 
uh, Brian F. O'Byrne shows up um, doing a, a really like unsettling American accent that is like, <laughs> that I like because uh, he's an Irish actor. Um, so if there are no bugs, who is Brian F. O'Byrne? Is he actually a doctor? Is he sorry? A, so he's the doctor who comes in at the end. Well, he's calling yeah. himself Doctor yeah, Sweet. Yeah. Is he actually Michael Shannon's doctor? Is he uh, someone from the military? Like, who is he? Because he seems to. I don't know, imposing and intimidating and, and uh, to, to just be a doctor who cares about him. Yeah, but there could be an in-between part where, like, I get the sense for sure that Michael Shannon was in some kind of government thing and just, like, ran away through the military or whatever. Yeah. Um, or maybe he was experimented on and just broke out from that. And so he could be some kind of, like, high-level security guy yeah. who yeah. maybe has always told Michael Shannon that he's his doctor um, but that doesn't mean there's bugs inside of it. It just means that there's other shit going down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There might be bugs. Okay. <laughs> I don't really believe that. Well, uh, I, that, um, uh, well, the timing's gone now because, <laughs> uh, but I was going to say that's a, that was a really good PT Anderson movie. Oh, there, there will be bugs. Yeah. Bugs. Yeah. Never mind. Um, yeah. you weren't busy looking at your phone. No, too. Yeah, it was too late. Um, and I, I should have mentioned alongside, but it's a good time to mention now, uh, just giving props again to that Twilight Zone episode I mentioned earlier. Very similar territory of like on the verge between paranoid fantasy and military intervention mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what the subject subject is covering. Obviously being Twilight Zone a little farther than the fantastical, but it captures it, the same kind of manic energy that Bug has. Well, um, I know you watched both of the CSI episodes he did, and based on the title, the first one... Is also about books. You would think so. Uh, it is not. Oh, okay. um, it's called so, Doc Yeah, neither of the CSI episodes are that notable. I, I do think if you're into Freakin', though, they're worth watching. Um, because Cockroaches at least opens with a very cool chase sequence where a guy's trying to uh, get away in a garbage truck that ends up having a dead body in it. But all this like trash is just like flying out of the truck. Mm. So it's really visually cool chase sequence through the streets of Las Vegas. Um and then it ends with this very surreal moment where this guy who's on the CSI team ends up getting implicated in a murder and there's like a chance he's involved. I'm sure by the next episode he gets exonerated in some fashion, but uh, Friedkin can tap into the mental state he gets into where he might have committed this murder. Um, so that part's really cool. In, in the season nine episode, um, there's kind of less of those flourishes, but has more of his directorial touch throughout and a little bit more confidence and chances he takes behind the camera. Um, the weirdest thing about the season nine episode is by that point, Lawrence Fishburne is the main guy. William Pearson's off the show and it's the exact same plot as a Hannibal episode. <laughs> so oh, wow. there's that episode of Hannibal where, um, Anna Klumsky plays like his former mentor who gets murdered and he's like trying to solve the case. Exact same plot in this episode. <laughs> wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. William Peterson, um, he said to pause for it. Oh, yeah. No. Sorry. I was going to, okay. I was going to finish my thought, but now we have to stop. No, 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 no. Um, so did, did, uh, do you think Friedkin's old friend, William Peterson got him the job? Yeah, I was trying to look into that. I couldn't really find much, but I have to imagine there was some more than coincidental there. Or maybe somebody on CSI was like, we'd love to get William Friedkin. Yeah. Bill, you know him, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. One thing I forgot to mention is that by this point, Friedkin has started being like a pretty renowned opera director. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. And like it became like a huge rejuvenation in his career starting in 1998, where like he was just friends with this conductor. He's like, I think he'd make a good opera director. He's like, I've never been to the opera. (laughs) Um, But his first production was like, 
hugely renowned and went over very well. So he started directing operas all over the world. So like there's some suspicion looking at his filmography, they just needed this job for the money. But one, he was married to Sherry Lansing. And two, he was like this huge opera director who had bookings all over the, the world. Um, so I have to imagine he just like did it to work with Peterson again and then liked the experience enough to come back the next season. Uh, all right. Well, let's move uh, firmly into the reconnaissance. Uh, well, it's like kind of started the reconnaissance, yeah. right? It's like this and Lincoln Lawyer came out the same and, year. And Bernie, right? And Bernie, yes, all yeah. the same year. Yeah. Also, when did uh, when did Mud come out? I think that, that was, was the year after. The year after? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because Mud was after Take Shelter because it's the same yeah. director. Um, but yeah, around this time, it was, yeah, this, the things we mentioned, also McConaughey showing up on uh, Eastbound and Down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was was pretty great. I guess. Well, yeah, I guess it was 2012, but uh, but Magic Mike as well. Yeah, like, yeah, that that like two year period was pretty amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, it I, just seemed like it coincided really well. Friedkin had trouble casting this part, and then he randomly saw McConaughey in a in TV interview, and was like, "I think he's got the intensity for it." And so there's like no reason he would should think of McConaughey because of his film work, but he hadn't seen any of the romantic comedies. And meanwhile, McConaughey was looking to do a career shift anyway. At least that seems to be the case with all these other movies he was booking. But that, I mean, that reconnaissance was so short lived because just, the, oh, it was a tiny sliver of time. The quickness with which McConaughey then bought into his own bullshit, yeah. and like, I don't hate Dallas Buyers Club. I obviously have some problems with it, but then yeah. like, by the time you get to gold, yeah, oh my god, yeah, it's over. <laughs> I, although, like, I remember when I went into uh, Interstellar, a movie that I liked way more than I thought I was going to, but I remember up until like probably still to this day. It is by far the most emotional uh, yeah. Christopher Nolan film, and I think a good portion of that is because of uh, Matthew McConaughey bringing a lot of heart to that role. Yeah, like, for he's sure. Still, no. He's still a good actor. Oh he yeah. Just, uh, maybe isn't picking the best stuff. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where what shifted, but yeah, Interstellar was to me like kind of the last breadth of that. And I love Interstellar, uh, but yeah. Um, but he's Kill- great in Killer Joe. He's uh, great in Killer everybody's Joe. Everybody's great in Killer Joe. Yeah. So um, this one was one that. Tracy Letts brought to Friedkin. He had already been developing as a screenplay, and you can tell that there's much greater departure from the stage stuff than in Bug. Um, the world's a little bit more open. Um, but Friedkin took to it immediately, and uh, Gina Gershon was one of the people that Letts wanted for one of the stage productions, but she was like, I don't think I can do this six nights a week, but I can do it once. And so he remembered her years later, and that's how she got in the film. Um, this was the this remains the only Friedkin movie I've seen in its, in its initial release. Um, and I loved it instantly and have just come to love it more and more through the years. Yeah, I, uh, um, I, yeah, I, I, had, I liked The Hunted. I had missed it, just meant, meant to get to it and, yeah. and, and never did. Um, I love the uh, poster treatment of the piece of fried chicken in the shape of the, yep. the state of Texas with a blood splatter, or maybe hot, spa, hot sauce splatter, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, but yeah, so I sat down to watch it um, and was definitely enthralled immediately, not just by... Gina Gershon's Bush, but um, that is kind of how the movie starts, essentially. Yeah. A barking pit bull and Gina Gershon's uh, exposed uh, pelvis, pelvic area. But um, I, then, I, then I started to get, I was like, oh no, is this movie going to annoy me? Because Juno Temple's character, um, Scott, if you remember, I was not a big fan of Lena Dunham's sharp stick from last year, right. partially because I found the main character to be like unbelievably naive. Hmm. But I think... 
I think this ended up skirting a line that worked for two reasons. One, that, like, it suggests that she's not just sheltered, naive. There might actually be something mentally wrong with her. And also because it gives her a little bit of, uh, quite a bit of agency by the end, but spoilers. Um, yeah. So it, it, it ended up warming back up to me, but it did have a, I did have a, 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 I don't know, 10 minutes or so of the movie where I was like, is this going to get on my nerves? But uh, I really liked it. Well, that's what's so good about it. I mean, beyond the fact that it's just like entertaining as hell and has great dialogue and great performances is it kind of starts with the notion that Killer Joe is in control of the whole thing. And by the end, he's completely out of control. And you get the yeah. sense at the start that Dottie doesn't have control over anything, that she's just kind of like a pawn in the game. Yeah. But she ends up asserting the most control over everything. Yeah, her character actually, uh, I, I felt much the same at the beginning. Um, but her character actually wound up reminding me of uh, Sissy Spacek in Badlands. Oh, sure. Um, and so, like, yeah, this kind of odd combination of traits that I think Juno Temple does a great job bringing together. Um, and uh, the thing is, I did not see this at the time because I think I had gotten confused with <laughs> this with the killer inside me. Oh, sure. Which is another, like, law enforcement officer who kills people. And, uh, and so I think I got that mixed up. And I think I... Like you literally went to the wrong theater. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um... But, uh, but yeah, and so I think by the time I, like, learned to differentiate between two movies with the same name, uh, with, it, with the same word in the title, um, you know, like a child would, <laughs> um, by that time, I had heard that Killer Joe was so intense and so, one could say, mean-spirited, um, or at the very least, dark, to say nothing else, um... I think I was like, at that time in my life, I was like, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. <laughs> um, ready for it now, though. Um, and, yeah, I I totally know what you mean. Like, as I was watching it, knowing it was based on a play, and having recently seen Bug, yeah. I thought, like, I thought, like, I can't always tell what, like what stuff was added or like how they divided up the scenes and all that obviously at the end that's all i mean yeah it's very pretty straightforward yeah right right down to the lighting i think mm. um but uh so i think tracy letts and uh william friedkin did a good job of of really opening things up uh even having a fun little chase uh, yeah in, in there um yeah i i think uh Definitely a dark uh, movie, um, a nasty piece of work, I think is was my Letterboxd review. But um, I think also has more of a case for being a comedy than oh, Bug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a part near the end that I won't, I won't give away too much of the details, but Gina Gershon has been absolutely <laughs> beaten to shit. Yeah. And Emil Hirsch comes home and at first, like, doesn't acknowledge it, <laughs> which is funny. Yeah. But then, like, says, I can't remember what her name is, but says, so-and-so, your mascara's running. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, she's got blood all over her face, but you just said your oh, mascara's running. Charlotte, your mascara's running. Uh, yeah, that's one, one of many very funny lines, most of which are, I think Emile Hirsch is, is very funny in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church, um, uh, <laughs> he's definitely funny. There's another thing that I laughed out loud. Uh, like with me in Sorcerer having a physical like out loud even though I'm watching an alone reaction yeah. 
when Gina Gershon and Thomas Hayden Church go to see the lawyer, yep, I knew she's got a he's got a loose thread yeah. on his sleeve, yeah. and she pulls on it, and the entire <laughs> sleeve falls off his jacket. <laughs> I, I will say this. Um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this aspect of the film or if I completely believe this thought that I had. Uh, as you know, I don't have a lot of patience for movies that kind of hate their characters. Oh, sure. I feel like this one might not only hate its characters, <laughs> but just hate everyone from the South. It's quite and possible. Like, and like every, and specifically... This is where I get kind of iffy about it, like uh, poor people from the South, like people that would be dismissed as trailer trash. Um, I never liked that designation. Um, And I don't know, it just the way these characters interact with each other and just the complete lack of any kind of moral fiber while also being pretty dim-witted. I don't know, it just seemed at times, it just seemed like something I didn't really respond to. But I, I don't know, you say the South or like, yeah, trailer trash or whatever, but like we get almost no perspective outside of that. So it's hard to say if that's, if there's a judgment being made. Yeah, I mean, the judge- I mean, it's just like a general nihilism. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think that's, uh, I think that's very possible. I mean, I, I do think that it is uh, the most... I won't even say cynical. It feels worse than that. I, I, yeah, I'll go ahead and say nihilism. Like, just the sheer amount of, like, nihilism. Like, there are no redeemable characters. Um, and it's just, by the end, you're like, I feel like I've engaged with the worst aspects of humanity. Um, but at the same time, it is darkly funny. Um, and... Boy, oh boy, you'd want to talk about the reconnaissance. But, like, when he find, when when he fi- found out, like, so would I have to do what with a drumstick? <laughs> and, like, how long is that sequence going to be? All right, let's do it. Uh, like, good well, for I mean, him. The, the props to them that go to Gina Gershon, not Matthew uh, McConaughey, I think. Well, that yeah, when the thing is actually happening, yes, good for her. I mean, that's amazing. Um, but it's it's, like... The lead up to it when he uh, like pretends it's his penis and then like wiggles it around a little bit and then the choice of camera shot like looking straight up at him is yeah hilarious well I do, I do wonder if that choice of camera shot was to give Gina Gershon some relief from having to like actually do that yeah there I mean Freakin talks about trying to keep that as little um on her shoulders as if it possible yeah. um but I think also think by that point, like uh, Joe's kind of around the bend as well. And yeah. to the point where like when he's like kind of having an orgasm there, it's like yeah. he could be faking it or he could genuinely yeah, be there. I feel like it could go either way. Yeah. There. Uh, how weird is it that they call it K-Fried Chicken? Not KFC. K- not K-Fried C. K-Fried C. Yeah. yeah. Is that a, are they trying to like avoid a lawsuit? I think something? they're trying to. Yeah. Skirt. Yeah. Um, on the yeah. commentary for you talked about that a little playfully. He's like, we found a different place than Kentucky Fried Chicken. We've got this K-Fried C. And, and I will say that, like, uh, man, talk about Chekhov's gun. Man, when he gets that, when that drumstick is just put in front of him on the table, there's just something to me, yeah. about me that I was just like, something's not good <laughs> here. 
and I don't know what they could possibly do with that. And then I soon found out, and I was like, wow, my instinct has never been more dead on. Um, yeah, it's, it's really an amazing film. It's not one that, uh, it's not one I don't, it's not one I think I'll be, uh, returning to very much because it definitely has a, uh, certain Neil Abute quality. Sure. But, uh, but I'm glad I watched it both on the part of, like, all the actors, uh, and also, uh, Friedkin himself. Because, again, this also has a lot of forward momentum, but I also really appreciate when he chooses to embrace the, uh, sort of the claustrophobic nature of one location. Yeah. Um, and again, I do think, like, when they turn that light on directly above the table, everything about that lighting, lighting choice is theatrical. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, it, this was an exciting one to see on initial release because it was at the landmark with, of course, the oldest crowd in the entire oh, world <laughs> who <laughs> could not have been more confused by the end about what they'd just seen. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we said we'd keep it under 90 minutes. We, we just failed. crossed out the 120 minute mark. Um, so uh, let's we're at the home stretch. The only couple, couple more, only one more that I've seen, which is a documentary, The Devil and Father Amort, which uh, I wish I hadn't even wasted my hour it's pretty bad. And 10 minutes on. It's uh, I mean, it's I, it's intriguing that he like got to film a real exorcism. Yeah. But then. I don't know. It just seemed like a bunch of hucksterism padded out by weird, like, making of the exorcist tidbits. And it still only gets to an hour and ten minutes or whatever. It's very short, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it, is that, like, a lot of people have kind of given it slack or flack for, um, like, trying to convince you of the reality of exorcisms. To me, that's not the problem. The problem is that it's so cheaply done, is that, like, he, he rolls out as the host, freaking does, and he's, like, kind of talking like Robert Stack and Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, this week on The F- Devil and Father of Mort. Yeah. Um, it's just like, and so much of it just feels like in the visual language of like YouTube conspiracy videos of just, yeah, complete wackos trying to take you down their rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, I mean, the footage is decently compelling, but it also gets like, just really boring after a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the most interesting part, to me is the part where he interviews the Archbishop of Los Angeles because that kind of gets into the it hasn't come out and say it but like he's talked about the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and basically like the Archbishop who was outranks Father Amort is saying like I don't think I'm holy enough to do an exorcism so like questioning this idea I don't know if it's questioning but even just like making that distinction between like the hierarchy of the Catholic Church is kind of like administrative it doesn't necessarily mean that the higher up you are the more holy or closer to God you are although I guess Catholics do believe that the Pope is the closest to to God but uh, I thought that was the only part as a left Catholic I think that I found particularly interesting about the movie. Yeah, I mean, he kind of goes to different authority figures as well he goes like psychiatrists and neurologists and stuff to present them with the footage and be like, is there any other explanation for this? Um, and they all kind of come up empty. Um, so there's kind of like that pervasive sense of questioning authority, but he doesn't come across enough. Like, I think there's a sense in which he's trying to come across like Jack Lemmon and 12 angry men of just asking questions, right? but he's kind of doing in that like smug way of like, I'm just asking questions guys. Yeah. Yeah. Also then when he like describes the most compelling thing that he saw, he's like, I didn't bring my camera into yeah. the church. <laughs> but, uh, but again, it like, it's kind I, of like the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And they just like ran out of money <laughs> and we're like, here's how it ended. I think even that there's a better way to present than the way they do it. There's just like these, again, there's cheap graphics and like 
color filtered footage. It just it just looks bad. It's just not interesting man, to watch. Man. I was I was thinking of watching this one, not just because of the Exorcist, but I also watched the Pope's Exorcist with Oh Russell sure. Crow, uh, which is not very good outside of Crow himself. Um, and so I was curious about it, but I thought like, well, uh, I had not heard good things about it, so I figured I'd skip it. Um, but that whole idea of like Friedkin coming out and like sort of hosting the thing. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, years ago, there was, a there were like these two, like, anthology horror things called Dead Time Stories, and they were hosted oh, yeah. by uh, George Romero, and, oh my gosh, it was <laughs> hilarious. First off, the movies, all, each story is terrible, but also, <laughs> they just clearly brought George Romero out and said, all right, say this, like, it has nothing to do with anything that we just saw yeah. or that we're going to see uh, and so one of the things like it ends with something with like all three characters dying or whatever and then it cuts back to George Romero like wearing that vest that he always wore uh, and just like hanging out in a chair and he goes well that didn't turn out very well and so like and then there's another one I know well you better believe I incorporated that into my review um, and then there's another one where um where it comes out of a story and I don't remember the I don't remember the ending but uh, it was not very scary at all so it comes to George Romero and he goes he goes if you've stopped screaming I have another story to tell <laughs> and it just like if anything you know I'm sure they gave him some good money for it but if anything it's like wow if George Romero thinks that's scary he must have uh really lost his touch. Oh, right. He hasn't seen any of these and never will. <laughs> uh, all right. Last one. I didn't see it. Uh, I don't know if Tyler, if you watched the Kane mutiny court, court march, sounds like you two did. So yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set down the mic. At least running on a high note. Cause I really loved it. I really liked it. Yeah. And it took me a minute to get used to the visual. Sure. Like it, it looked cheap, but then I thought, well, it kind of looks like an episode of the West wing. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, you know, there's nothing, you know, nothing stylistic about the lighting or the staging or anything like that. I do think the camera is very curious. Very, um, yeah. And I think that's really, uh, and I think it has to be because this is, uh, unlike the Kane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart, like, this is one location. It's all stuff, you know, it's all characters talking about stuff after the fact. And yet I'm riveted. I think it's great. I think all the performances are solid. And the thing that really struck me is that Friedkin wrote this. He wrote this himself, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty close adaptation. Well, yeah, but still. Yeah, But, uh, but like, the choice of how to end it, I think, is interesting. Um, I don't remember the original play yeah, it's different. ending at that exact moment. Yeah, it's different than the movie, but it's pretty close to the play's ending. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the most interesting thing is just updating it to the present day. I know, it so, made me wonder, like... People say, like, oh, well, what do you do in your real life? It's like, what do you mean? They're not drafted. <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's some stuff like that, but I, I think that's the strongest, one of the strongest choices, um, just in, like, a macro sense, because yeah. it takes it out of this, like, post-World War II, you know, greatest generation milieu yeah. of, like, suddenly it becomes somewhat honoring of the people who fought in the war on terror, which is, like, yeah. a much more questionable moral uh, ground to play in, and, like that transforms the entire nature of the last speech. And that's the thing. It's like, 
it's fitting with what I was saying about Bug and Killer Joe, which is like, you know, if he had made Kane Mutiny in the 80s or 70s, yeah. uh, then obviously the mutineer would be like the obvious hero. And we wouldn't get... And Queeg would obviously be the villain, but here, like, both in the performance and obviously in that final speech, um, Queeg is... I mean, he's kind of pathetic, which then makes him sympathetic. And whereas all, all these young rebels, you know, they're seen as, like, you don't understand how this happened. You don't, like, you just don't understand, like, what these people have done for us. Like, it really does feel like it's very of the moment. Like, when you think about, you know, when you see this, uh, to sort of put a timestamp on this, like, you can see all these TikToks of people, like, of young people reading, like, uh, Osama bin Laden's right, like, letter yeah. to America. And they're like, oh, he had some good, he had some good thoughts there. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. I think maybe we should, uh, factor in everything right. when we talk about this. And so I do think, like, the idea of younger characters, albeit characters in the film, in the military, uh, but not having a full understanding of, of like, sacrifice and not having a full under a full respect of the organization that they're in, um, and then kind of ending on a lecture about that, I think is really interesting, and it's it's very different than the Friedkin from you know his heyday. Well, but it, also like so that's the same arc the play takes, and but it's speaking to the people who came into the military after World War II and not showing proper deference right. to the people who fought in World War II. The right. fact that it's like lecturing those young people about the people who fought in the war on terror is like, well, did they really do anything honorable in the first right. place? Yeah. It's like, that's a much more nuanced take on any iteration of this play in the past. And and it seems to kind of take this attitude of like, like no matter what war it is, sure, yeah. um, there's just something inherently honorable about this that younger generations are never going to understand. I, see, I think we're coming at it from different places. We're no. like, I, I think it's texturing Jason Clark's speech in a different way of saying like, well, sure, if you think the war on terror was an honorable expedition, then yeah, we should show more deference to Captain Quig. Sure. But a lot of us feel that the war on terror was a failed mission that a lot of soldiers perpetrated war crimes during. Yeah, which makes... But that, but that kind of makes Quig a tragic character. Oh, for sure. Uh, and I think that's exactly how Kiefer plays him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And man. he's so good in it. Yeah. His performance is so, like, on one hand, you could say, like, it's really monotone in a lot of ways, like, very staccato. Um, and but yet, the physical thing of it is like, oh my gosh, it's yeah. like, it's so. I mean, I think everyone does a great job, but obviously, like he's the one we're going to be paying attention to, and just like the stuff he's doing with his hands, even yeah. before anything is called attention to it and like you just feel so bad for this guy yeah and his whole demeanor of like trying to reassert his authority but like feeling yeah. the stories come out from underneath of him yeah um it's played much more tragically than yeah bogart did where oh, like sure. he was like not quite villainous but like definitely more like he set himself up to be in a bad situation yeah. and he's just trying to cover his ass well in the movie that's the thing is like it shows us uh in the moment yeah as opposed to like everything afterwards which is just people's interpretation of the situation yeah and so i feel like in the original as much as i like him as as much as i love bogart's performance it does feel like by its very nature it can't be 
it can't be as ambiguous as just the trial. Yeah, for sure. And we're seeing it. Yeah, we get the sense that Quig definitely lost the nerve at some point, but it could yeah. have been ages ago. Like, we have yeah. no idea of how far back it goes with this guy, and he doesn't really know either, and yeah. he's only going to come up so much into confrontation with it yeah. at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great port. I mean, everyone's like playing different levels of self-delusion, which is a great yeah. kind of freaking milieu to play in. And yeah, I mean, it's just a remarkable final film to go I out was, on. Yeah, I was very happy I saw it. Um, and again, like when I first started watching it, I feel so bad saying this, but it just seemed so cheap. And I know, I, I kind of felt that too. And I just thought like, oh, and it made me kind of sad. Yeah. But I was like, oh man, like you couldn't get like a, a bigger budget for this. But after a while, like, I came to really embrace that as like, just like, no, this is not going to be stylized. This is a court of law. And so we're just going to present it as straightforward as possible. Much like 12 Angry Men, I would say. Yeah. And the jury set or the, not jury, but the courtroom setup was interesting too, where like the witnesses are really just put out like kind of on display. They're oh, not like yeah. in a witness box. Yeah. And so you get more of the sense that Captain Quig's like not quite being hung out to dry, but that he's more exposed than anyone else. Whereas oh, everyone absolutely. else gets to sit behind a desk. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody the, else has at least one person next to them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. Listeners, you might not even know that this thing. I exists. know. <laughs> Uh, check it out. It's absolutely worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, quite the career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we talked about all of it. So, um, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. We should wrap up. Uh, thank you, Scott, for, for joining once Yeah. Again. No, thanks um, for having me. And uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where you can find the, this podcast and a lot of movie reviews from Scott and, and, and from Rudy lately. Um, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Davey Pretension on Letterboxd at David Bax. Uh, check out my other podcast. It's called The One Where I Met Your Mother. Um, I do it with my wife. Uh, hell yeah, I do. Um, tyler, do you have anything to plug? Sounds like you're doing all the plugging. <laughs> okay. Um, Scott, do you have anything to plug? Uh, just Twitter and Blue Sky Row of Tomorrow, Letterbox, Scott and I. And yeah, got reviews up on BP for Saltburn and something else I posted this week that I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, a bunch coming up in the next few weeks, end of the year is full in flux, and I've got screenings booked like crazy. Your Saltburn review intrigued me. There was, uh, if you'd asked me any movie that I was not interested, sure I wasn't interested in this fall, uh, it was Saltburn. But your movie, your review got me intrigued. I don't know. Somehow I always get interested in sophomore features by directors who had yeah. big splashes that I didn't like their big splash movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, sense. all right, let's see what you can do. Really cut loose. I, I, maybe I should uh, start thinking that way because yeah. Uh, yeah, now I'm looking forward or at least curious about yeah. Saltburn. Uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.